I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Are those white clocks on Yeah. Uh, it's 8 o'clock. Perfect. My experiment worked. They're all exactly 25 minutes slow. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Doc. Are you telling me that it's 8.25? Precisely. Damn. I'm late for school. I'm joined by James Diamond. Hello. Owen Hughes. Hello. And not Jerry McCauley. Sad news for all you Jerry fans out there. The, the two all of you. three of you. Yeah. <laughs> hey, he is no longer a full-time member of the podcast because he wants to play rugby. <laughs> so he will be joining us on a part-time basis because he wants to play rugby. Slacker. Basically, he wants to put his knob in other people's pints of beer after a rugby match rather than play rugby. <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying any more than that, but we'll miss you, Jerry, this week. He'll probably be back next week. <laughs> mm. uh, so, yes, Jerry is gone, but the rest of us are still here. This week, we have uh, new reviews of new releases about time and Riddick. Uh, a triple bill of our favourite time travellers from the world of film uh, and what we've been watching. But first off, is the news? And yes. Um, yeah, first news? off, well, not only has Jerry gone part-time, but he's chosen a week in which Jack Nicholson has announced his retirement from acting. I think Jerry um, picked the wrong week, really. The news has been overshadowed by Jack Nicholson. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and, and I'm not sure if Jerry's is because of his issues with memory and things like that. He's not as old as me yet. Yeah, unfortunately, um, Jack Nicholson, one of yeah, one of the great actors of all time, uh, has sadly had to retire because his memory is starting to fail him. That seems to be the, the, the big reason around it. Um, really, really sad. Such a such a brilliant career. Uh, started off in and well, recently I was watching a documentary, Corman's World, about the Roger Corman films and seeing the 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 break that he got in some Roger Corman films. Absolutely fantastic entertainment to watch. Um, broke through with Easy Rider, uh, and then made just such a run of incredible films in the in the seventies. Mm-hmm. You've got one th- one flew over the cuckoo's nest, Chinatown. The Shining, uh, Five Easy Pieces, you know, some really top quality uh, stuff. And I think sometimes, I do think sometimes we forget about Jack Nicholson when we talk about the great American actors. And 
people will talk about De Niro and they'll talk about Al Pacino, rightfully so. Mm. But I think uh, I think Jack's one of the ones that just bubble underneath and possibly don't quite get the recognition they deserve. Uh, well, he, I mean, into... he's, um, he's won three Oscars, hasn't he? I mean, there's... yeah, in different decades as well, which is even more remarkable. Yeah, you know, it's it's. I think he's got a lot of um, uh, Academy recognition, and you know, from his peers and stuff. But you're right; he probably doesn't quite get. A, you never really see him at the top of people's favorite actors lists anymore. No, which is a shame because I still, you know, I liked him in The Departed, one of his more recent films. I thought he was brilliant in mm. that, and he is one of my, if not my favorite actor. Um. Yeah, but it's sad to hear of him. Wow, at the time. I didn't realise that. I yeah, 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 I love Jack Nicholson. I think he's yeah. he's excellent. Um, so, what what would what would be your kind of your your top three Jack Nicholson acting performances then, if you had to separate them down into three? Um, well, one flew over the cuckoo's nest is obviously mm. you know I only came to that that one this year I think. Um, okay. And he's just just utterly brilliant in it. I think he's excellent in the last detail as well. Um, I've not seen that one. Yeah, that was released just before One Flew Over the Cookies Nest, um, a couple of years before, I think. And it's one of his, his big breakthrough roles as well in terms of, you know, he'd had uh, Easy Rider and Five Easy Pieces, which sort of brought him to the, the sort of front of people's minds and stuff. But it was the last detail, which was the one that kind of catapulted him. Um, but I'd probably say it's <laughs> it's a very boring choice in many respects, but probably The Joker. I think it is oh, okay. the Joker in Batman's one of the most iconic, you know, comic book superhero villain performances in, in history. You know, yeah, it's um, it's probably what made it such a difficult role for Heath Ledger to take on, and everyone was saying that he couldn't do it because in everybody's minds is Jack Nicholson's Joker. Mm. You know, it's a very iconic character. So, yeah, but you know, he's been great in everything that he's been in. I think yeah. as good as it gets, um. Is one of his sort of more well-known roles, but you know, a few good men, which we've talked about on here in the past. As that's well. yeah, that's gonna that's that's in my top three. I I love his performance, and obviously it led to one of the most famous lines uh, I think in modern movie history. Uh, you want the truth, you can't handle the truth. Yeah, yeah. Mate, you know, brilliantly. Uh, but he he's fantastic in that, and I agree with you uh, about one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And Easy Rider is just another one of those that I absolutely the the lawyer who just gets dragged into a world of utterly <laughs> bizarre, trippy sixties nonsense. But it, I think for me, it, in Easy Rider, it just showed the charisma around the man and he is one of those people that has got that movie star quality that mm. we've spoken about who's got a charisma on screen but he can also really bloody act as well so steve what about you uh i'd say uh the shining uh one mm-hmm. over the cuckoo's nest and a few good men would be my favorite three yeah. of his but you know there's batman as the joker his, his kind of small part in Mars Attacks, just <laughs> varied, mm. varied performances and good in yeah. all of them as well. The Departed, like, he tend to take on different roles and excel in all of them. Yeah, mm. I, I really enjoyed him in As Good As It Gets as well. And people keep telling me to watch about Schmidt, and I've not seen that yet. Um, but that's something I'll, I will get round to in the very near future. So, yeah, Jack, we'll miss you. Um, 
So it's, it's always a shame to see a great actor like that just retire and think, oh, well, that's it now. We're not going to see them again. Mm. Well, yeah, it's a bit of a shame. Um, and the, the other bit of news is this week, uh, Toronto Film Festival got into full swing. And Toronto is always the first... It's the warning shot, really. Oh, it's not the warning shot. It's the the starting pistol in the race for the Oscars. Um, last year, Argo did phenomenally well at the festival, got rave reviews, and that was when I picked it up for at uh, ten to one to win Best Picture Oscar. So, uh, just just to remind everyone of that. But um, yeah, basically, films really need to do well at Toronto to be in there at the Oscars. If they're going to do well at a, a festival, that's one of the ones to get there. And this year's film that's been getting loads of buzz off the back of its performance, Standing Ovation, few people walking out during some quite harrowing scenes, apparently, is the new film from Steve McQueen, 12 Years a Slave, which is the based on the true life memoir. And apparently it's quite a faithful adaptation of the true life memoir of uh, a black man, in 19th century America who was born a free man but sold into tricked and sold into slavery Diamond. Hello. Owen Hughes. Hello. And not Jerry McCauley. Sad news for all you Jerry fans out there. The, the two all of you. All three of you. Yeah. <laughs> hey. He is no longer a full-time member of the podcast because he wants to play rugby. <laughs> so he will be joining us on a part-time basis because he wants to play rugby. Slacker. Basically, he wants to put his knob in other people's pints of beer after a rugby match rather than play rugby. <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying any more than that, but we'll miss you, Jerry, this week. He'll probably be back next week. <laughs> mm. uh, so, yes, Jerry is gone, but the rest of us are still here. This week we have uh, new reviews of new releases about time and Riddick. Uh, a triple bill of our favourite time travellers from the world of film uh, and what we've been watching. But first off, is the news? And yes. Um, yeah, first news? off, well, not only has Jerry gone part time, but he's chosen a week in which Jack Nicholson has announced his retirement from acting. I think Jerry um, picked the wrong week, really. The news has been overshadowed by Jack Nicholson. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and, and I'm not sure if Jerry's is because of his issues with memory and things like that. He's not as old as me yet. Yeah, unfortunately, um, Jack Nicholson, one of yeah, one of the great actors of all time, uh, has sadly had to retire because his memory is starting to fail him. 
uh, seems to be the, the the big reason around it. Um, really, really sad. Such a such a brilliant career. Uh, started off in and well, recently I was watching a documentary, Corman's World, about the Roger Corman films and seeing the the, the break that he got in some Roger Corman films. It, absolutely fantastic entertainment to watch. Um, broke through with Easy Rider. Uh, and then made just such a run of incredible films in the in the seventies. Mm. You've got one th- one flew over the cuckoo's nest, Chinatown, The Shining, uh, Five Easy Pieces. You know, some really top quality uh, stuff. And I think sometimes I do think sometimes we forget about Jack Nicholson when we talk about the great American actors. And people will talk about De Niro and they'll talk about Al Pacino, rightfully so, mm. but. I think uh, I think Jack's one of the ones that just bubble underneath and possibly don't quite get the recognition they deserve. Uh, well, he, I mean, he's, to... um, he's won three Oscars, hasn't he? I mean, yeah, in different decades as well, which is even more remarkable. Yeah, you know, it's it's. I think he's got a lot of um, uh, Academy recognition, and you know, from his peers and stuff. But you're right; he probably doesn't quite get. A, you never really see him at the top of people's favourite actors lists anymore. No. Which is a shame, because I still, you know, I liked him in The Departed, one of his more recent films. I thought he was brilliant in mm. that, and he is one of my, if not my favourite actor. Um, yeah, but it's sad to hear of him. Wow, time. I didn't realise that. Owen. Yeah, that yeah, I love Jack Nicholson. I think he's, yeah. he's excellent. Um, so what what would what would be your kind of, your, your top three Jack Nicholson acting performances then, if you had to separate them down into three um well one flew over the cuckoo's nest is obviously mm. you know i only came to that that one this year i think um okay and he's just just utterly brilliant in it i think he's excellent in the last detail as well um i've not seen that one yeah that was released just before one flew over the cuckoo's nest um a couple of years before i think and it's one of his his big breakthrough roles as well in terms of you know he'd had uh easy rider and five easy pieces which sort of brought him to the, the sort of front of people's minds and stuff but it was the last detail which was the one that kind of catapulted him um but i'd probably say it's it's a very boring choice in many respects but probably the joker i think it is the joker in batman's one of the most iconic you know comic book superhero villain performances in, in in history you know yeah it's um it's probably what made it such a difficult role for Heath Ledger to take on, and everyone was saying that he couldn't do it because in everybody's minds is Jack Nicholson's Joker. Mm. You know, it's a very iconic character. So, yeah, but you know, he's been great in everything that he's been in. I think yeah. as good as it gets um, is one of his sort of more well-known roles. But you know, a few good men, which we've talked about on here in the past. As that's well. yeah, that's gonna that's that's in my top three. I I love his performance, and you know, obviously it led to one of the most famous lines. Uh, I think in modern movie history, uh, you want the truth, you can't handle the truth. Yeah, yeah. Mate, you know, brilliantly. Uh, but he he's fantastic in that, and I agree with you uh, about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Easy Rider is just a, another one of those that I absolutely the the lawyer who just gets dragged into a world of utterly <laughs> bizarre, trippy '60s nonsense. But it, I think for me. In Easy Rider, it just showed the charisma around the man. And he is one of those people that has got that movie star quality that Mm. we've spoken about, who's got a charisma on screen, but he can also really 
bloody act as well. So, Steve, what about you? Uh, I'd say uh, The Shining, uh, One mm-hmm. Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and A Few Good Men would be my favourite three yeah. of his. But, you know, there's Batman as the Joker. His, his kind of small part in Mars Attacks, just <laughs> very, very mm-hmm. varied performances and good yeah. in all of them as well. The Departed, like, he tended to take on different roles and excel in all of them. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed him in As Good As It Gets as well. And people keep telling me to watch about Schmidt, and I've not seen that yet. Um, but that's something I'll, I will get round to in the very near future. So, yeah, Jack, we'll miss you. Um, it's always a shame to see a great actor like that just retire and think, oh, well, that's it now, we're not going to see them again. Mm. Well, yeah, it's a bit of a shame. Um and the the other bit of news is this week, uh, Toronto Film Festival got into full swing, and Toronto is always the first. It, it's the warning shot, really. Well, it's not the warning shot. It's the the starting pistol in the race for the Oscars. Um, last year, Argo did phenomenally well at the festival, got rave reviews, and that was when I picked it up for at ten to one to win. Best Picture Oscar, so uh, just just to remind everyone of that. But um, yeah, basically, films really need to do well at Toronto to be in there at the Oscars. If they're going to do well at a, a festival, that's one of the ones to get there. And this year's film that's been getting loads of buzz off the back of its performance, Standing Ovation, few people walking out during some quite harrowing scenes apparently, is the new film from Steve McQueen, 12 Years a Slave, which is the based on the true life memoir and apparently it's quite a faithful adaptation of the true life memoir of uh, a black man in 19th century America who was born a free man but sold into tricked and sold into slavery and he passes through a couple of owners the first one a more kindly progressive owner played by Benedict Cumberbatch and then till he ends up in the hands of a absolute sadist played by Steve McQueen's chief collaborator, Michael Fassbender. Um, See, I've got, I've got a problem already. Cumberbatch should have been the villainous one. That's it, yeah, I, I like how Cumberbatch is playing against type there, being the nice... Um, Cumberbatch has got so many films coming out this he's, autumn, it's ridiculous. And, and apparently he's been cast in the new Star Wars movies as well now. Yeah, I've heard that as well. Is that um, confirmed although, yet, or is it just a rumour? It's rumor? not confirmed, right, okay. it's, it's more rumours. And just to just to say, I believed some of the, I believed Cranston had been confirmed as Lex Luthor. Apparently, no, that's still not actually confirmed at all. Um, we talked about that a week or two ago, I think. There's a lot of this kind of casting nonsense going around at the moment. Um, what I did... Notice about because Cumberbatch is in the Fifth Estate as well. The story of WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. Um, he's in a few other films as well. He seems to be in a load of films. And this has also got um, Chiwetel Ejiofor. Is that how you pronounce it? It is now. <laughs> <laughs> Where we normally get Jerry, isn't it? Just yeah, no. Um, yeah, apparently. We're we're looking at serious acting, directing, best film nominations for Twelve Years a Slave, especially after Lincoln missed out um, on all the big and and Django actually missed out on most of the big acting, directing gongs um, for their portrayal of slavery. So 
if if you can find anywhere, I can't find an online bookies taking bets on the Oscars yet. But if you can anywhere, Twelve Years a Slave is potentially uh, a top one to go for. Well, so Idris Elba's new one about um, uh, Mandela. Long Walk to Freedom. Yeah, I think yeah I'm... about Mandela. Yeah, there's a Mandela one. Yeah, there's. Do you know what? Having a look through the films which are coming out in the next three or four months, in terms of not the blockbusters, but the the you know the real kind of award season films, mm. there are some really really promising films. New David O. Russell film out, uh, American Hustle. Mm-hmm. Um, he's banged that out in less than a year. Uh, mm. That looks that actually looks really good. Um, yeah, a few other well, Gravity, of course. Yeah, and and I was going to say Rush, which is out. And Rush, yeah, yeah exactly. Which is um, which is our review next week, and you've already seen it as well, and we're very impressed. So, I, I I'm quite excited about awards season this year, and there's bound to be a few more that have kind of slipped under the radar as well. What we'll say is, um, Twelve Years a Slave is getting its UK premiere at the London Film Festival in October, alongside Captain Phillips, a new Paul Greengrass film starring Tom Hanks as uh, a freighter captain whose ship gets uh, boarded by Somali pirates. It looks like a more all-action version of um, a hijacking, which I really enjoyed earlier uh, this year. The Palm Door winner, Blue is the Warmest Colour, which is the, mm. uh, which it seems to be known as the three-hour lesbian drama. <laughs> so I'm all in for that. Uh, and Jonathan Glazer's Under the Skin as well, the first um, film since, since, I think it's about in about eight years, from Jonathan Glazer, the former... Uh, pop music uh, video director. He did Sexy Beast as well, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Or was that someone else? Uh, yeah, I think yeah. it was. Yeah. Uh, about Scott. It looks a bit... Has anyone seen the trailer for it? No, I've not seen it yet. Mental. Scarlett Johansson in a kind of um, the man who fell to earth type affair. Scarlett Johansson is an alien from another planet and she drives a van around Scotland um, luring young men into it and then sucking out their life force. Uh, it looks quite Lynchian, mm. looks utterly bizarre, uh, and had people booing and <laughs> cheering it at Venice, which is always the sign of a film I want to. So there's a lot. We, uh, end of this month, we're going to have our autumn preview, and I'm sure we'll we'll pick up on a few more of those films then, but that's the news for this week. If you're going to go around any country sucking out people's life force, is Scotland the best one to pick? Yes, probably. Yeah, we've yeah. Should, should, might as well just piss off our Scottish <laughs> listeners. As well, but you know, it's not exactly the country for or, the most vibrant. Could it be? Yeah. There's, yeah, there's not a lot of locals <laughs> there. Uh, there is that. Oh God, that's I I love Glasgow. I, hopefully, the people of Scotland will have listened to the Glasgow Film Festival podcast I did back in February and realised that I love the place, and I hold no truck with Steve's casual racism. <laughs> Scots aren't a race. I can't be racist towards them. Okay. I'm fine on that ground. <laughs> but technicality. Yes. Uh, up next is what we've been watching. What we've been watching then. Um, and James, why don't you start us off this week? Okay, yeah. This week I watched a film which I meant to seeing the cinema. I actually tried to catch at Glasgow Film Festival, but I, I wasn't able to get a screening of it there. And then it came and went quite quickly in my local cinema as well. It's a film called Robot and Frank. It's the debut film released earlier this year by Jake Schreier. It stars Frank Langella, Susan Sarandon, James Marsden, Liv Tyler, and the voice of Peter Sarsgaard. 
basically it's set in the near future which if you ask me that's the near future is one of my favorite eras for films to be set in i, I really love the not too distant future it, because... I, I find it disappointing because i should have a hoverboard See, what I like about it is it goes, do you know what, we probably won't have hoverboards yet. Although we will have really helpful robots by the look of it. Um, And it, it's a great era for indie sci-fi films as well, because you don't need to do too much to make it. Yeah, I think Loop, that helped with Looper. Looper wasn't set too far in the future, and so you could make it still recognisable. Um, and th- for me, this film... It, it really helps a film like this because this film didn't cost a lot um, but you don't it doesn't need to splash all its money up on screen basically Langella stars as Frank who's a retired jewel thief who at the beginning of the film is showing early signs of dementia and his son played by James Marsden gives him what he calls a, a robot butler uh, as a gift it's to help Frank out around the house tidy up the place because Frank still lives on his own Frank reluctantly accepts this robot he's doesn't trust it, but he knows that the alternative is being put in a home. And then the film follows the journey of Frank and the robot's growing friendship. And they soon they start planning one last heist together. Because Frank sees that the robot and its innocence, but also its agility and its ability to break locks, could be the ideal partner. And you've got a bit of a kind of odd couple um, culture clash film going on as well. It's actually a really sweet film. Langella's fantastic in it, especially when you consider that for a lot of the time he's acting opposite a piece of plastic um, with the voice added in later. So he does a brilliant job, uh, really captures fine balance between Frank's hard and caustic outer shell. He's really sarcastic to people, he's rude, he's obnoxious, um, but there's this vulnerability that he kind of knows that his memory's going, he lives on his own, his daughter and his son don't really spend a lot of time with him. So he's hiding that vulnerability as well, and he, he plays both sides of that really well. It's got some really funny moments. It's not a laugh-a-minute type of film, um, but a lot of the lines will leave you with a nice broad smile on your face rather than leaving you rolling on the floor. And actually, in a lot of ways, it reminds me a little bit of Safety Not Guaranteed last year. It's kind of this year's Safety Not Guaranteed for me. It's... Um, sci-fi rooted in a kind of realism um it's about an outsider who lives in a rural location struggles to interact with his community and then this unlikely call to adventure for him as well and it's just as likable as that film it's it's important to remember that it's not all sweetness and light some of the scenes of frank's condition are quite heartbreaking actually um and there's a really poignant parallel between the corruption of his human memory and the memory of the machine that he's living with as well. Film, It's refreshingly quite cynicism-free. It's also wonderfully brief at 90 minutes as well. We all know how much I like that. Um, lovely performances. Susan Sarandon's brilliant as ever. Um, so I'd say Susan Sarandon, Frank Langella, wonderful kind of chemistry they've got on screen. Highly recommend it. Excellent. Um, Owen, your film is? Uh, well, the film I'm going to review is a Studio Ghibli film, um, even though we're going to do a Studio Ghibli special soon. Um, <laughs> but basically... <laughs> well, what happened was, I thought we were going to be doing the Studio Ghibli episode today. So over the past uh, 
sort of five or six days, all I've really watched are Studio Ghibli movies to try and get up to speed. So now I haven't got anything else to talk about. So I'm going to have to pick a, a, a Ghibli film. Uh, and I'm picking one which I actually ha- I love. Uh, honestly, I love it. I don't normally love Studio Ghibli films. Some of them I've, I've watched and I've quite um, appreciated or enjoyed on a certain level. Uh, I think I mentioned before that I watched Ocean Waves, which was which was my favourite until I watched um, Whisper of the Heart, which is um, it, although it's actually um, written by uh, Miyazaki, it's directed by a different guy called Yoshifumi Kondo, um, but it's just a, an animation about um, a young girl. She's she's you know she's a bookworm. She spends all the time. Um, either at the library or just fantasizing about um, things that she's going to do with her life and she doesn't really know what it is that she wants to do and she meets a boy who's um, quite ambitious and it sort of spurs her on to do stuff and it also makes her quite depressed about how she's she's going nowhere even though she's only 14 and it's just a really sweet animation and I, I, I... yeah, like I say, I really, I really loved it. It's, it's just such a, a romantic story, and I, I, I kind of love how whimsical and nostalgic it is. And it, compared to some of the fantasy stories that G, Studio Ghibli have made that I've not really gotten on with, um, I tend to prefer the ones that are based in more kind of realism. And, and it, although there, there are certain points in this story where it does go slightly uh, out there and a bit sort of fantasy-like. It's mainly grounded in a realism about this story of this girl who's... It's like a coming-of-age story, I suppose, in many ways. Um, but it's that nostalgic quality, um, which I, I think is present in in Ghibli's best films, and that's what I want from their movies, and that's what the strongest element of, of Whisper of the Heart is. Um, and I don't think none of their films have really captured that feeling of being young and both ambitious and clueless at the same time quite as well as, as this has. And... Uh, Shizuki, who, Shizuku, sorry, who's the, the main character, it's, it's her struggle to find her place in the world, um, which is just so beautifully constructed. And I, I, <laughs> there were times during it where it's just so sweet and I just you just almost want to cry and laugh at the same time. It's just, yeah, I wasn't expecting to love it quite as much as I did. And uh, it's just it's just fantastic. And it's one of those films, actually, where you think... If you were the same age as the main character, if you were sort of 13 or 14 or 15 even, and you were watching it, you'd probably find it quite a relatable story in a lot of ways because you think it's the same sort of problems you're going through and it's that parents don't really understand what's happening, you know. But I'm I'm kind of glad I've watched it as an adult rather than as a kid because I think the the benefit of being able to just reflect back on your life at that age kind of gives it an extra quality because you you pick up on how... (laughs) absurd some of the more complex social relationships that have, and structures that have been built up around this girl are but at the same time you realize that actually when you're that age they are these big dramatic things that mm. happen in your life and it's just it, it, honestly i can't recommend it enough really i've probably said too much now and saying like i'm just gushing over it and i haven't really got anything meaningful to say but <laughs> it's it's just a beautiful film i loved it Everything, the music, the animation, the characters, everything. That's that sounds like a top recommendation. I'll give that a go because I, conversely to you, I've struggled a little bit with the the more kind of the realism mm. side of Ghibli. Uh, apart from Grave of the Fireflies, 
which we've kind of spoken about on here, and we'll save that for our little Ghibli Corridor of Praise section. Sure. Uh, but, yeah, I, I've struggled a little bit, but when I know exactly how you mean. Sometimes when you've, when you've really liked a film, it's actually difficult to express it on this podcast. I've had the... Well, I've really, really enjoyed a film. Sometimes you've got less to say, mm. just because... It, it was just brilliant. Yeah, you just want <laughs> so, people to watch it, and you get frustrated yeah. that people don't love it as much as you do. And it's just, yeah, it's that. It's definitely, it's definitely that <laughs> that sort of film for me. One that I, I just love, and I just want to make sure everybody's seeing. And I'm recommending it to everybody all the time, and to the point now where I think I'm probably quite annoying because I've just gone on about it to everybody all the time. <laughs> I've tweeted about one... it a hundred times, and. <laughs> <laughs> Is that one you had to get through Love Film, or was it on the Film Four season recently? It, yeah, you know? well, I don't, I don't know if it was recently because it was, it was on my, it's been on my planner for a very long time. So it has been on Film Four. But then, it has so been on Film. They might show it again. Yeah, but I've just cool. gone out and bought the Blu-ray because I've. Oh, what you yeah, <laughs> But if you like sort of uh, the the more realism side of Ghibli, so stuff like um, uh, Ocean Waves, which I mentioned, or Only Yesterday. Or even stuff from from um, my neighbour Totoro, then mm. you'll probably probably like Whisper of the Heart. Okay. Okay. Well, the film that I'm reviewing uh, has a hundred percent rating by critics on Rotten Tomatoes, ninety five percent from non critics. It was nominated for four Academy Awards. It's directed and produced by Alfred Hitchcock. Stars James Stewart and Grace Kelly was parodied brilliantly by The Simpsons, was reimagined terribly by Shia the Beef in a, a film called Disturbia. It is Rear Window. And how is your ankle, Steve? Uh, not better than it was. Um, Good. Yes. In, and did you witness uh, any attempted murders or anything like that during no, your. I think, I think we should give the listeners some context. If you <laughs> listened last week, you'd have known that my recommendation for this week was to watch Rear Window. And in a twist of irony, I sprained my ankle playing football and therefore couldn't do much other than sit in my room. Well, actually, James Stewart had less to do. He didn't have an Xbox, so he didn't have that choice. <laughs> or, he did have Grace Kelly visiting yeah, him, yeah. though. Yeah, that, that is. I definitely didn't have that or anything near <laughs> that. I did have an Xbox and Netflix would have pretty much up to date with Breaking Bad after that. Anyway... I couldn't really witness any murders or potential murders out my bedroom window because it looks over a cow field. So, um, but yes, in a strange twist of irony, I was in the same position as James Stewart minus Grace Kelly in Rear Window. I'd seen it a long time ago, hadn't seen it for a while though. Um, but yes, it is typically um, tense as you'd expect from a Hitchcock film. Um, basically, James Stewart is a photographer who breaks his leg, is basically bedridden for the, for the time being, not being able to do much, so just looks, spies on his neighbours. Curtain twitches, for for a, a lack of a better term, and then yeah. discovers, or thinks he discovers, his neighbour murdering his wife. Um, and he has to try and convince various other people, his friend who's a policeman and, his, his girlfriend, Grace Kelly, and everything that has happened, try to get them to find out more because he can't put his stuff in his bedroom. Um, and it is 
well, as the critics and everyone else who seems to have watched it agrees, a fantastic film, very tense, still stands up well now, even though it is over 50 years old now, isn't it? Yeah. And it still stands up well now. Much like Vertigo, when we watched that, it hasn't aged badly at all. It's aged brilliantly. It's still just as... You know, one wonders why they had to get Shia LaBeouf to do a kind of remake of it when they could have just put this on instead. Oh, yeah. It, yeah, no, it's a crazy idea. Um, No, I think this is one of the... Well, A, I think this is one of Hitchcock's best, full stop. Uh, and it seems to be... It's become the one that... I'd say movie fans rather than film critics cite as their favourite Hitchcock usually. Um, and out of most of Hitchcock's, I think this is one of the ones which also hasn't dated. It just it feels timeless. Uh, great performances from Grace Kelly, but particularly, obviously, James Stewart. Um, a simple idea, executed brilliantly. It, it, you can, yeah, you could watch this in any decade it's, and it's, genuinely enjoy it. It's not just the tension, you know, of, of trying to find out, discover whether the neighbour did do the murder, but there's the whole kind of little neighbourhood community that he overwatches mm. and how they change within the events of the film and the whole kind of idea of community and friendship. And, well, not friendship, but, you know, neighbour, you know, being good neighbours and, you know, that kind of thing. And the way that dynamic changes throughout the film, kind of as a, as a background thing to the main, the main plot. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I totally agree. It's, it's it's a really nice world that Hitchcock creates there, and allows the viewer just to 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 be that voyeur that James Stewart's character is. Um, I, I I adore Rear Window. I watch it at least once every year, every couple of years, uh, a minimum. Brilliant film. Oh, and have you seen it out of out of interest? Yeah, I've seen Rear Window. Um, I agree as well that it's just a timeless film. Um, I think partly what helps it seem like it's not aged is how it's set like um uh, like a play almost. You know, you've got your very very mm. specific sets, and you can sort of move the, the the camera sort of pans between different places. But it also feels like it's just taking place in one set. Um, and of course, the acting in it is is fantastic. So I think that kind of sets it up to be a film that's, that's it doesn't need to feel like it's going to date at all because it could be happening now really the only difference is they haven't got mobile phones or internet or or tv so it's um yeah i really i really like rear window i probably i wouldn't i don't know if i'd say it's my favorite but it's definitely one of my favorites mm. of hitchcock's excellent uh, that rounds off uh what we've been watching and then up next is the long-awaited return of triple bill So, Triple Bill is back this week uh, with an uh, eye on a new release review of About Time. Uh, we have been asked to pick our favourite movie time travellers. Not time travelling films, time travellers in film. Uh, I will start off. I took this as time travellers that isn't Marty McFly or anyone from Back to the Future because that would be a bit boring and, and unoriginal. So I yeah. started off with Bill and Ted from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and also Bill and Ted's Bodacious Journey. Um, bogus Journey? Bogus Journey. Is it not both in different places like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles can't be called Ninja Turtles in England because it's too violent and ninjas and stuff? 
I don't think because so. they keep because it's a, it's a bad journey. I, I think it's their bogus journey. It is. You're right. Go, yeah. yeah. Any, anyway, I'll go with the first Although film because was... we should use the word bodacious more often <laughs> yes. these days. That, that. We will. It stars Keanu Reeves in one of his um, best film roles, in my opinion. It all goes downhill after the Matrix, in my mind. Um, anyway, they are two friends who um, want to be rock stars, but they basically are no better than playing air guitar, essentially. They're not very good. Also, they've got to pass a history exam, um, or else one of them, I forget which now, I think it's Ted, will get sent by his dad to military school, breaking up the band, which is no good. So Rufus, played by George Carlin, comes from the future to set them on the right path, give them a time-travelling phone box. To go back in time, they go and get many characters from history to pass the history test. They do. Everyone's happy. Brilliant film. Everyone loves it. Yeah. And you know what? I'm just going to jump in here and say kind of crossover because my choice was Ruf- one of my choices was Rufus. <laughs> Rufus. I, yeah, I just loved him. First time I saw Rufus appear in that. The telephone box. Oh, he's just so damn cool. George Carlin is so damn cool in this film. Because like you say, um, Bill and Ted are lovable losers, aren't they? Um, we we love them, but they're muppets. They're idiots. But um, Rufus has got a cool name. He's got the cool futuristic robes. Um, he comes from a time of peace and where everyone has to be excellent to each other. Uh, yeah, so one of my... Just because we're talking about Bill and Ted, I'm, I'm going to have to say one of my choices is Rufus from Bill and Ted's Anyway, e- exciting news. There will be a complete trilogy by the looks of it. Uh, there no was, way! Yeah, there was a, there was a script yeah. around. Uh, there was yeah. a script around in 2010. 2012, both Alex Winter and Reeves said they liked the finished script. Um, and... In August of last year... Well, Alex Winter's going to, isn't oh, yeah, he? He's he doing, can't yeah. get on film for love nor money. <laughs> um, in, in August of last year, Dean Parasot, who was the director of Galaxy Quest, signed on to the project as a director. Um, the movie's not been given the green light yet, but we could be having a complete Bill & Ted trilogy. Wow. Although, um, George Carlin's dead, isn't he? Yep. Yes. Oh, that's a shame. So uh, Rufus will be there. It ruins the whole time travel aspect, doesn't it? How are they going to avoid <laughs> not having Rufus in it? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, let's see. I'm being a bit liberal with my next choice, but there have been movies made of it, and I'm staying with uh, time-travelling telephone boxes. Oh, yeah. And I'm picked in Doctor Who. Nearly in my list, but I decided against it. Played, played by many an actor, currently Matt Smith, uh, although John Hurt will be in the 50th anniversary special, which will be very interesting to see. Now going to be Next going to be played by Peter Capaldi as well. Um, he is a Time Lord from Gallifrey who travels around the universe in a, in a phone box, sort of helping people out. I can't really say much more than that because it's not particularly one film, it's 50 years worth of television and a couple of movies, so... Oh the, yeah, the, I was going to say there are a couple of movies. Like there's the Peter Cushing movies mm. from mm. the sixties, um, Daleks Invasion Earth, and the other one I can't remember the name of. And of course there was Paul McGann in Doctor Who the movie in mm. the mid nineties, ninety five possibly. Yeah, which wasn't um, great. 
but but all of a sudden the doctor was half human or something. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it it's the, the film. It's a shame because Paul McGann is a really good, and this is where I come across. This is where I get to be a bit geeky for once because you guys talk about comic books and stuff like that. Um, Paul McGann's um, Eighth Doctor audio stories are absolutely bloody fantastic. Um, made by Big Finish. Um, yeah big fan of Paul McGann as the eighth doctor in the audio stories. Really, really good stuff. So there you go. Mm. Uh yeah, the film the film wasn't great but it kind of let me pick it. Pick the Doctor as a one of my favourite time travellers from from movies. Let let me in the back door if you will. Um also like the fact that Robert Mugabe's got some of these hidden episodes somewhere buried oh, away. See, just when you think you can't get more evil. <laughs> You throw in an actual real life dictator. Yeah. Um, yes, and my final one is I couldn't find any other time travellers who had a phone box, so <laughs> had to leave that dynamic there. I went with uh, George Taylor from uh, Planet of the Apes, played by Charles and Heston brilliantly, uh, Mark Wahlberg not so brilliantly, and Troy McClure in the musical <laughs> version of Planet of the Apes. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. There's a sort of crossover, but I'll let you finish, and then when I do mine, I'll sort of explain the difference. Okay. So, yes, George Taylor, best best played by Charlton Heston, obviously, uh, was an astronaut who um, he went off into space. Obviously, that's where astronauts go. He got to nearly the speed of light, crash-landed on a planet that was ruled by monkeys, apes, and we all know the end. Um, but it's a fantastic film with him as a central character, so that's why I picked that one. I won't ruin the end for people who haven't seen it, because that would be a bit unfair. But maybe instead of me talking, James should just edit in the Troy McClure stage musical version of <laughs> Planet of the Apes. I might well do that, actually, yeah. <laughs> Dr. Zeus, Dr. Zeus. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Uh, right, both of you have had crossover with me, so I don't know who to go to next. Uh, well, I've already mentioned one of mine. Yeah, you, um, you might as well get the, get the other two out of the way then. Yeah, so, um, yeah, Rufus was one of mine. Like you, I thought, well, I can't say Doc Brown, stroke Marty McFly, um, stroke Biff, actually, um, because, yeah, Back to the Future is not only the ultimate... Um, time travel film but one of the ultimate films of all time uh, and everyone's seen that and there's been plenty of stuff talked about there so i've gone for three films that people might not have seen or might have missed um and the first one was bill and ted's which most people will have seen to be fair um the next one is a film that very few people will have seen um because it's loads of people think it's not very good on imdb it's got a 5.6 rating, which isn't promising. Um, it's got 25 from Metacritic. But I saw this one night on Sky Movies 4 or something like that, about eight years ago. And I I just really, really enjoyed it. It's also a remake. Um, it's a remake of a foreign film um, called Le Visiteurs. And it's an American film called Just Visiting. And my time traveller is Tibalt played by Gene Reno. Um, have either of you two seen Just Visiting? I no, I've heard, even about heard it. of it. I've yeah. definitely heard Based, of it. Tybalt uh, is a knight from the 12th century, and um, himself and his valet are cursed by a witch, and to try and get rid of the curse, 
they make use of the services of a wizard played by Malcolm McDowell. This, this, this was made in 2001, and it's got Malcolm McDowell in, so you can just see the kind of budget we're looking at here. It's, uh, they, unfortunately, the spell goes wrong, and they are transported to 21st century New York, and um, where Tibault ends up falling in love, meeting and falling in love with a woman uh, played by Christina Applegate, who resembles the woman he wanted to marry back in the 12th century. Also stars Tara Reid. Okay, this, this, I'm really not selling this film. <laughs> yeah. it, for me, it actually does the whole culture class thing very well. It's, too, it's a French knight and his peasant from the 12th century in modern-day New York. He ends up drinking from a toilet. All the uh, usual kind of, oh, this is crazy. But uh, for me, the film's got a lot of charm. And Gene Reno carries it off really well. It, Gene Reno continues the role he did. In, it was originally a French film, and Gene Reno recreates his role from the French film, which I have seen, and actually is a better film. But that wasn't the first one I saw, so this um, uh, this is the one I went for. So it's, it's Tibalt from Just Visiting. You'll probably see it late night on a Sky Movies channel at some point. It's don't bother don't bother like getting it from Love Film or anything like that. It's not that good. But I I enjoyed it and it stuck with me. Um and then my final choice, rather than being someone from the Middle Ages sent to our time, is someone who was sent from our time to the Middle Ages. And that's Ash from Evil Dead Army <laughs> of Darkness. Nice. Um those of you who don't know, he's uh Ash at the end of Evil Dead Two, after finally defeating the de- demons and spirits, is sent back in time to thirteen hundred AD, um, armed only with his it's a long time since I've seen it, but armed only with his chainsaw. Uh I think his car goes back with him as well, doesn't it? Yeah. Um Yeah, now you're asking. Yeah. <laughs> um uh where uh there are two kind of medieval clans at war and during the course of, he, he accidentally raises the dead uh, army of the undead a clone version of Ash comes to lead the army of the undead and Ash manages to using his knowledge of 1970s technology <laughs> manages to defeat his clone self the army of the dead and unite all the factions uh in blissful harmony it's it's definitely it's the episode of the series where sam raimi went more for the comedy it's, than for the it's very the goofy yeah yeah it's it is really a bruce campbell film um it's funny it rounds off the series quite nicely it's bizarre sense of humor actually um and yeah i, I wanted to pick some people who were kind of sent in time rather than were time travellers as such. So that's that's my last choice. Yeah, hail to the king, baby. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and Owen, your your choices? Um, well, I wasn't going to start with it, but I will since we've talked about Planet of the Apes already, but I'd picked um, two characters together. I'd sort of cheated a little bit. But if you're having Bill and Ted, then I'm going to have Cornelius and Zira, um, played by Roddy McDowell and Kim Hunter, in Escape from the Planet of the Apes. Um, which follows the events from Beneath the Planet of the Apes, which is the worst film in the series. Um, but they get sent back in time and crash land in the 70s, uh, the 1970s. And they become celebrities. Um, 
among the sort of humans who are curious about them because they are apes from the future who bring about a message that the world is going to end and it's partly because of the apes. Um, so, of course, that sort of incites this, the fear inside the government about what they're going to do about it. Can they do anything about it? Um, but, yeah, I, I think they're actually really quite cool characters. And their story is it's a, it's a very sort of tragic story. Their world has been destroyed. They're dumped into this place they don't really know anything about. People treat them as strangers and, you know, almost like circus apes at times because they're just seen as these... It, these things that have come from the future and they're just there for people's amusement at times. So it's, you know, it's quite a tragic story in many respects, but they're, they're very good characters. I think probably Zira is developed throughout the course of the series of the films better than Cornelius, who's just the scientist, really. Zira was the one. If you've seen the first Planet of the Apes, um, she's the one who calls um, Charlton Heston bright eyes. She's, you know, she's the, the one who sort of oversees everything, really. She's the researcher and looks after all the, the humans that they capture. So the roles kind of get reversed a little bit with this one, where she's under observa observation by various people. Um, and all that they want to do really is just start a family, um, live life normally, or what, what, they, what they think would be normally. Um, but they're just people who are from a different time, put into a different place. And yeah, it's, I, I think they're really interesting characters and, and they're in a very interesting situation in Escape from the Planet of the Apes. Um, much like Charlton Heston is obviously in the first film. Um, but I thought it's kind of, a, it's a, whereas that one's more of like a, 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 almost a sort of action science fiction film. It, uh, in, in Escape from the Planet of the Apes, it's more like um, a sort of drama really. And it's, a comedy as well in a lot of respects but it's also yeah i quite like them two characters in it so they were they were going to be my second choice what was going to be my first choice um was admiral james t kirk of the uss enterprise <laughs> as played by william shatner um i think we're in agreement on the podcast aren't we but um and it has been raised a few times in the past star trek 2 wrath of khan is probably the best movie in the series yeah that's good okay doesn't really feature that much time travel in it um, but the best example of time travel to me in the Star Trek franchise, and there's quite a lot of it that you could choose from, is Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, where Kirk and crew have to travel back in time to fetch a whale in, from 1980s <laughs> America. Yeah, <laughs> it is bizarre. It's just a strange story. It's obviously just Leonard Nimoy's way of trying to, um, you know, he, he was a bit of a hippie, wasn't he? Um, yeah. Back in the back in the day so it's his story of you know save the whales um, but yeah i mean <laughs> even excusing the fact that it's sort of quite a so shit it's good time travel story with the most absurd plot to it kirk is brilliant in it it's probably his best role as that sort of slightly arrogant um bull-headed captain who thinks he knows everything about everything you know, everything about Earth culture, he's you know, he's read about it in a book and he's experienced parts of it and he knows what, what it's about. But then he just gets so much of it wrong and it's hilarious. Um, it's just the perfect story for the more comedic um, Captain Kirk rather than yeah. the sort of heroic leader of a, a, a ship. But it, yeah, it's a proper comedy sci-fi and I think Shatner's just completely on form in Star Trek IV. Um, yeah. Yeah, my final choice. Um, I could easily have picked a Van Damme film for this triple bill. 
I was thinking about it with Time Cop. Yeah. Um, and but I thought no, because you know he seems to come up in every single one of my <laughs> my triple bills or my articles for the sites or the best film on TV picks. So <laughs> I decided to leave him for this week. And my man crush this year anyway is kind of John Wayne, but I don't think he's made any films with time traveling. Um, so I'm going to have to be really boring and say that Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, in James Cameron's The Terminator as the title character is my final choice. Um, probably massively expected, and there would be, quite rightly, outrage, I think, from listeners if nobody had picked The Terminator, um, a robot that's yeah. sent back in time to destroy the... Yeah, blah, 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 blah. We all know Terminator. So I'm really surprised neither of you two put him on your list, by the way. It was one that I people had already kind of tweeted it in. Yeah. And I thought I and I just knew you'd have it covered. I've got to have him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't have a phone box, no. But. <laughs> um. But yeah, Terminator. Just a. I'm not going to go on about it. We've talked about it already. People know everything there is to know about Terminator yeah. nowadays. It's just a, a really cool film and character. Yeah. Okay, that wraps up Triple Bill. Um, uh, just to say, we did have a few people tweet in theirs. Um, I'll just quickly say, most of them got picked up here. Uh, Tom Mould, at Tom underscore Cargo, said, surely the T-800 is up there. <laughs> uh, Nathan Human said, Doc from Back to the Future. Hector from Time Crimes, which I've not yeah, seen yet. Yeah. Um, and James Cole from 12 Monkeys. Um um, Paul Fisher said Bill and Ted, uh, so yeah, some uh, some nice choices there. So thanks thanks for those guys. Okay, uh, yeah, so that wraps up Triple Bill. Brief break, then new release reviews of Riddick and About Time. So our new reviews this week are about time and Riddick. As we've just done a triple bill on time travellers, James is going to start us off by reviewing about time. Uh, Here's a clip though first. Ah, Tim, come in. Uh, Do sit down. It's very formal. Well, um, yeah. This is an odd moment for me, because I had the same moment with my father when i just turned 21, and after it, my life was never the same. So I approach it pretty um, nervously. Okay. When you're ready, it's all very mysterious. Uh, right. Tim, my dear son, uh, the, uh, the simple fact is the men in this family have always had the ability to this is going to sound strange. Be prepared for strangeness. Get ready for spooky time. Uh, but there's this family secret. And the secret is that the men in the family can travel in time. Well, more accurately, travel back in time. We can't travel into the future. This is such a weird joke. It's seriously not a joke. So you're saying that you and Grandad and his brothers could all travel back in time? Absolutely. And you still do? Absolutely. 
Although it's not as dramatic as it sounds. It's only in my own life. I can only go to places where I actually was and can remember. I can't kill Hitler or shag Helen of Troy, unfortunately. Okay, stop. Um, if it's true, uh, which it isn't. Although it is. Although it isn't, obviously. But if it was, which it's not. Which it is. Which it isn't. But if it was, how would I actually... The how is the easy bit, in fact. You go into a dark place. Big cupboards are very useful, generally. Toilets at a pinch. Then you clench your fists like this. Think of the moment you're going to, and you'll find yourself there. After a bit of a stumble and a rumble and a tumble. Wow. Okay, so that was a clip of About Time. James, tell us all about it. Okay, yeah, that clip there um, was uh, featured a young man called Dom Hall Gleason, but in the film he's called Tim, and you will have recognised the unmistakable voice of the wonderful Bill Nighy there. This is the latest and apparently last uh, film directed by Richard Curtis. It's also written by him as well, and stars um, as well as Dom Hall Gleeson, Bill Nye, Rachel McAdams, Lindsay Duncan and Tom Hollander. Now, let me just start by saying, I, I need to get something out there. If you don't like any of Richard Curtis's previous films, so the ones that he wrote like Four Weddings and Funeral Notting Hill, or his more recent writer-director productions like The Boat That Rocked, and especially Love Actually, you won't like this at all. Don't go and watch it. Don't do it to yourselves. It hasn't been made for you. Okay, so let's to get that out there. Because Richard Curtis, for me, is fast becoming a genre of his own. Um, his films have very particular tropes. Uh, and kind of like most in the horror genre, the dumb action genre, or the musical genre, uh, most of those films, the majority of films in those genres, will not convert a non-believer. And it's absolutely the same here. If you are not someone who is going to enjoy a Richard Curtis film, you're not going to find anything here um, that will make you change your mind. Now, the story itself is about a 21-year-old man who's told that all the men in his family can travel in time, uh, but it's only along their own timeline, never forward in time. It's only places they've been to, uh, the clip there, and saying, yeah, they can't go back and kill Hitler, for example. Now, this what, being... What, a if, what if he was... What if it was, like, the granddad who was, like... 95 or something, could he go back and kill Hitler? Probably could. Uh, there are other complications that get put in there as well, though, which gives us a little bit of the the drama of the films. I won't spoil it for anyone. Uh, but obviously, this being a Richard Curtis film, no one goes back to kill despotic dictators. Um, Tim, the, the young man who's just turned 21, uses his power purely for good reasons, and in particular, uses it for love. You know, I get this being a Richard Curtis <laughs> film. The cast is ludicrously white, middle class, and just ruddy, bloody lovely. Should, Even the sh- knobhead. He should have thrown in a mental cousin, though, that was going back in time doing all kinds of <laughs> killing them. <laughs> <laughs> that, would, that would have been quite Under interesting. The yeah, yeah it could, kind of, and then Tim had to become some kind of time cop to track him down and stuff, yeah. But it, it's not that kind of time travel film. Um, obviously this being a Richard Curtis film London looks like the kind of place where no one ever sleeps rough let alone gets mugged Um, Cornwall features very heavily as the family home of one of those annoyingly perfect middle class families who do crazy stuff like drink tea on the beach and play table tennis in the shed it's got an MOR soundtrack featuring the music of Sugar Babes and possibly the Lighthouse family I couldn't remember Um, 
Also has, and I've only really noticed it in the last couple of Richard Curtis films, he's got quite an adolescent, like, teenage male view of sex and relationships. Um, and I can't work out if that's realistic, because at heart we're all adolescent males, and he's just, he's just not guarding himself. I, uh, part of me thinks maybe he's just not self-censoring. He's going, no, this is what I think about sex and relationships. There's a really bad moment in The Boat That Rocked, which is not a good film, um, where essentially a rape happens, but it's all friendly and jokey. Um, there's a bit of context there. Uh, yeah. man's having sex with a woman, and then he sneaks out because they want to get one of the younger cat men there to lose their virginity. So he backs away and lets the younger man come in and finish having sex with the woman. Now, that's, that's rape, that okay, is, but it's done in a yeah. lovely, cuddly, Richard Curtis way. There's nothing like that here, but there are moments where Rachel McAdams appears to be getting down to, into her underwear for a bit of frivolity and for no reason. And it's almost like, at times it feels like Richard Curtis is going, brilliant, I can get Rachel McAdams in her underwear. Now, to be fair to him, man can get Rachel McAdams in her underwear. I, I, who am I to argue with that? But it does feel, at times, a little bit like a teenager has written this. Um, and and I'll be honest, let's not even get into the plot holes here. Uh, convenient narrative solutions caused by introducing the time travel idea. Be cl- this isn't Primer. Okay? Um, there's no need for a diagram, Steve. You're fine there. Good. Um, and at one point, uh, Tim's father, played by Bill Nye, talks about the butterfly effect and goes, don't worry about it, we've been lucky. But that, there you go, so that's that sorted. Um, it, it's even more offhand than when Looper uh, tried to like get people to not question. It's just like, yeah, no, it just doesn't happen to us. We're fine. Um, it's sickly sweet. Uh, Domhall Gleeson sounds as you will have heard from that clip exactly like a young Hugh Grant it's quite scary it is like Richard Curtis gone I need I need someone young but they need to sound exactly like Hugh Grant because that's what I know uh it's over long it's over two, just over two hours long Whoa. baggy in the middle um yet and yet um I left with a tear in my eye and a smile on my face and I liked the film. And this goes back to my warning, my caveat at the top. There's something about Richard Curtis films which will manipulate you. And if you are willing, and if you enjoy that kind of manipulation. But people go to see horror films because they want to be scared. I go to see a Richard Curtis film because I want my heartstrings tugged at. And I want to believe that people are inherently good. It's nice. No one criticises Woody Allen, on the whole, for making films about a very small subset of people who live in an area of New York. Okay, he writes what he knows. No one criticises Frank Capra for his sentimentality. Now, I'm not saying Curtis is even in the same league as Woody Allen and Frank Capra, but he writes what he knows for an audience who enjoy it. Um, And to that end, he's very good at that. This was, for me, it was an enjoyable (laughs) film. Weirdly, the um, the time travel gimmick isn't used as much as I thought it would be. I got the impression this was Richard Curtis's cover version of Groundhog Day, and it isn't anything like that, actually. And the second half of the... In fact, 
I'd say two-thirds of the film are more just about human relationships, what it's like to be a parent, what it's like to lose someone, what it's like to be in love. They're actually just about general human relationships. Um, the other great thing about this is the cast. Um, Dom Hall Gleeson's actually really good in this. Bill Nighy's as fantastic as he usually is. Tom Hollander is hilarious. Uh, those of you know, he, people who've seen him in British sitcoms will know the kind of thing that Tom Hollander can do. Very, very funny man. Um, Rachel McAdams, really quite grounded in this film. She isn't, as I expected her to be, the kind of you know, flighty Andy McDowell American, but she's a genuinely well-rounded character um, who just comes across as quite a normal person, which is weird because apparently Zoe Deschanel was due to play her, but had to drop out due to scheduling, and I think that would have wound me up something chronic. Um, so really glad to see Rachel McAdams in it. There's some funny bits. There's some bits that will that will genuinely put a tear in your eye, regardless of your uh, your outlook on life and things like that. I I, I was surprised because I expected this to be a grand mess of a disaster, and it really isn't. It's actually a rather sweet film about family and about grasping the nettle, carpe diem, living your life in the moment. And I there's for me there's room for films like this as well as you know the more hard cynical films that are out there as well so i'd i would recommend it but only if you're not the type of person to go and go i hate richard curtis don't if you can don't just don't bother going to see it don't waste two hours of your life because you'll hate it but if you are the type of person who goes you know what i don't mind seeing a film like that for a couple of hours i quite enjoyed love actually i think you'll get something from it i won't waste two hours of my life then And that's why I gave that caveat. That is exactly why <laughs> yeah. I gave that caveat. Because I watched it thinking, right, what am I going to say? I, I was thinking, Jerry would loathe this. Owen would be mightily unimpressed. Steve might quite like bits of it. That's That was my thinking. Steve, what are your thoughts on Richard Curtis? I like Love Actually, not seeing the rest. Okay. If you liked Love Actually, I think you'd like this. Don't Probably don't... Yeah, you don't actually, need to go I, see it. It's actually, not what you need to see actually, the cinema. I don't think I like Love Actually. I just like Christmas. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that that it can have that effect, can't mm. it? Christmas. Yeah, yeah, I, and I don't wouldn't want to sit down somewhere for two hours watching that. I just... Catch it on TV at some point. I think you might be pleasantly surprised, Steve. The, the guy in it, I can't. You said his name, and I, I still not remember. Tom Hall Gleeson. Yeah, he yeah. um was in an episode of Black Mirror. You know, oh, was the it? Charlie Brooker thing. I've still not watched any Black Mirror. Yeah, he was really good at that. He was playing like um a robot. An oh, okay. android type thing. Yeah, he was um he was very good. Bit eerie, he's... but it was yeah. Oh, oh that's really interesting because he's really got the young Hugh Grant thing down yeah, in this. It's film. interesting. I, was, well, I couldn't picture him like that, but Yeah, he sounds like Hugh Grant for a start, but he's got the kind of nervous, blustery, middle class oh 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 I'm, I'm terribly sorry. Yeah. Mm. He's got that down to a T. Um, really good. And, yeah, I just... Interesting. Oh, and Lindsay Duncan as well. Brilliant in this. I really like Lindsay Duncan. And okay. she she's fantastic as his mother in this as well. And I, I think the strength of this film is... Um, it is in the cast. Um, and one other thing I do just want to say about 
um, Richard Curtis, the man wrote the last episode of, uh, well, co-wrote it with Ben Elton, the last episode of Blackadder Goes Forth and gets an eternal pass from me, mm. but simply for that one of the best bits of television I've ever seen. So, And I think we sometimes forget that he created, co-created Blackadder as well because he's gone on to do quite fluffy, nice stuff. But he's always been a, a, a funny man, I think. Okay. Uh, Owen went and saw Riddick before he told us all about Vin Diesel being all actiony and stuff. Here's a clip of it. Grant any last wishes? I was referring to you. Not that the chains aren't a hot look, but no. I'm not gonna straddle you in front of all these guys. What if I killed all of them first? Easy, boy. There's a lot more trank where that came from. Okay, yeah, so that was a clip of Riddick. Um, Owen, what did you make of it? Hmm. Yeah, strange. Mixed opinions on it, actually. Um, chronologically, the story carries on from the end of Chronicles of Riddick. So he was in charge of the um, Necromongers at the end of Chronicles. And this basically begins with him actually isolated on a desert planet with sort of weird creatures all around trying to kill him. And you don't quite understand what's happened, but you do know that everything is, you know, it's it's sequential. It's carried on from from the last film. Um, and the first third of the movie, I mean, I did, when I say it's, it's isolated on a sort of desert planet, I do mean he's isolated because there's very little dialogue at all. Everything that comes from the film is through um, narration um, in the first maybe 15, 20 minutes. Um, I mean... Riddick might utter the odd line, but it's it's mostly a it's yeah very strange. It's it's kind of unique in that sense in the franchise because um, you know even though in Pitch Black he doesn't talk for for very long. Um, it, I mean it takes him a, a long time before he actually says anything towards the start of Pitch Black because you know when you first see him he's all tied up and he's gagged and stuff. Um, but in this it's just yeah it's it's, it's kind of unique in that sense. Um, yeah, I mean, it goes on for quite a bit longer than is necessary as well, this this almost silent part, to the point that it gets a bit boring. It it looks good in the, it, with all those, the same techniques as was used in Pitch Black with, um, you know, the sort of colour palettes over the screen and it, it, stuff being in the shadows and stuff, as you'd expect, because you can see in the dark, obviously, which means there's lots of contrived scenes of him being in the dark. Um, <laughs> and... Yeah, so, I mean, it goes on for quite a long time. It does get a little bit boring. I appreciate some aspects of this part were required to set up the rest of the plot, um, particularly with him getting a weird, funky space dog thing as a pet, which is a strange move, um, because it seems quite sentimental for someone who's supposed to be um, a merciless killer. But anyway, in the second half of the film, you get what is basically a remake of Pitch Black. So you get the bounty hunters who've arrived on the planet to try and capture him, partly lured there by Riddick himself as he wants to steal one of their ships to get off the planet. Um, so, yeah, you get more darkness, you get more monsters, um, and the humans, yeah, okay, they're 
they're monsters themselves. We get it. Yeah, we understand they're the <laughs> monsters just as much as the, the weird creatures are. Um, but yeah, it brings some welcome humour to to the script. I don't really like the, the stupid space dog thing. It was just ridiculous. Um, I keep hearing about the space dog. Is it genuinely bizarre bit of cinema or something? It's just a bit weird. I mean, you can. It's why do people put dogs into films, mm. James? Why are dogs in films? Um, they're they're cute. cute. They're... People people like dogs. People yeah. like dogs, but what happens to dogs in every uh, dog... film with a dog in it? Um, well, not uh, they get killed. They not get home killed. Bound. Home bound, they, don't. they get killed. They go no. missing. They either make yeah. a miraculous save towards the end of the film, yeah. or they do something that's it's entirely predictable. That's the yeah. main problem with the space dog. As soon right. as it's there, you just know. Okay, so he's going to no, form that, an attachment yeah, to the dog, and the dog's going to do. It's something. the loaded gun in the first act, isn't it? It's it going is. to get fired in the third. Yeah, exactly. So, um. The, the, yeah, the, the dog just wound me off because it wasn't anything new and it was just a bit sentimental and didn't really fit, particularly with Riddick's character, who is this, like, cold killer. Um, yeah. So it's a bit strange. Um, maybe it's supposed to show that he's grown over the course of the films, I don't know. But, he, you know, he's this guy who doesn't have friends, and so to give him a friend, he just plays against what he's supposed to be for me. But, um... Mm-hmm. Yeah, but anyway, like I say, it's almost like a like-for-like remake of Pitch Black at times, just with different characters, which is fine, because I think Pitch Black is a solid science fiction action film, really. Um, Mm. And, you know, it it tried to better that style that that Pitch Black had, um, and what made the film so endearing, I think. It polishes it a bit too much, so it it scrubs off some of the the roughness that that made the the first one quite actually enjoyable as a sort of B-movie. Um, and makes it a bit too polished. Well, it could just be because Vin Diesel's, um, you know, he's producing this one. He wants to make sure it's it's going to make money. To be to first of all, he had to. I don't know if you read an interview um, uh, on Film 4's website with him, where he sort of basically had to put his own house on the line to make this film. He had to use it as. Um, Gold. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he pretty much had to back this film himself to get it made because he he loves the character and stuff, you know. It's his mm. it's his project, really. It's his it's it's his thing, and he loves all all these like geeky science fiction stuff. So, you know, fair play to him for doing that. Um, and I suppose the most positive aspect of the film is, in a way, the way it, 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 it's how it looks, and I think it it does look more polished, and it's a less gimmicky style than Pitch Black was. It's a bit more subtle um, with those sort of tones. Uh, it, I mean, it's, it's just more of the same, really. Um, which, like I say, it's okay in some respects. You, you hope they'd be a bit more original with it, but at the same time, it, it was a top tried and tested formula, and it works much better than the awful Chronicles of Riddick did, um, <laughs> which is terrible. And like I say, the humour does come from pe- from the characters that are introduced, like Dave Batista, who had some funny lines in it, the former WWE wrestler, um, who uh, he looks quite imposing. He has a few funny lines, doesn't really have an awful lot else to do, but then he does what he's supposed to do well. You also get Matt Nabel, who was good as this calm but assertive good guy mercenary, if such a thing exists, you know. <laughs> and you get Geordie Moller, who's his complete opposite as this crazy um, Latin American mercenary who's 
just a bit nuts. Um, one of the, the support characters in it, the, the, I mean, there are a couple of things I don't really like about Riddick, and one of them is the way that it handles the female character in this, completely oppositely to how the first film in Pitch Black, it does it quite well, you know, it introduces mm. this, this female character who's quite strong, and she's the lead in the film almost, and the, everything, so the plot follows her rather than, or as much as it does Riddick. In this film, Katie Sackhoff, who is probably best known for her role in Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. She comes across almost as the token woman. Uh, and as such, there's only two roles that she's ever going to play in this. She's either going to be a love interest for somebody um, or she's going to be a butch, hard lesbian. And that's what she is. She's the butch, hard lesbian who um, she gets to beat up the men. And um, instead of making her a strong female character, they kind of... Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Just make her into a male character who's female. And, you know, yeah. it, it, that, that, that was a bit aggravating to start with anyway. But then there's a, this horrible twist with her character, um, which really kind of wound me up a little bit. And partly all the good feeling I'd had up to that point through Riddick, I lost a lot of it towards the end because it's just really insulting the way that her character's used and some of the stuff that she, she says and does. Um, and also to, to do with Riddick himself, who makes like a rape quick uh, quip, and you just think that's not on really. Yeah, <laughs> it's just a bit. Especially now he's grown and got a dog. You oh yeah, he's left he's meant... rape yeah, quips exactly. behind. Obviously not matured at all. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I read a really interesting um, column in online mm. on Empire's uh, website about literally the thing you're talking about, and it sounds like it would have made me hugely angry as well yeah. uh, it's just very uh, inappropriate and I, I don't yeah. know why it was left in because um yeah it was it, it, it's it's not a good move and it, quite rightly i think they're getting criticized for it um yeah they should. um yeah oh the other thing yeah with regards to support actors in this carl urban's name appears on the opening credits i thought oh He's back because he's in the second one, and this is quite exciting. I quite like Carl Urban. I want to see more of him. He's in it for about thirty seconds during a flashback sequence, so <laughs> don't get too excited. <laughs> um, he might be one of the bigger names on the poster, but um, yeah, thirty-second clip is all you're going to get, I'm afraid. So, I mean, just to sum up, really, the film, um, it's got some quite cool scenes, the sort of things you'd expect from from Riddick with him mm. killing a few people or killing a few monsters and stuff. And the creature designs themselves are actually quite nice. I wanted to see a bit more variety in them. Some, the main creatures of the film, the variety in those is just some are big and some are small. I would, I would quite like to see a bit more variation. But yeah. um, and it, I mean, it's an 18-minute film that's stretched out into a two-hour-long film, which meant there were long periods of this where you're just a bit bored and you just wish it would hurry up, or you think they could have just cut out 10 minutes of this and you know 
but they don't and it's in there so you have to persevere with it um and i guess that's it really it's a dumb action movie with some nice effects but it was never going to be anything but what it is so mm. yeah I thought about going to see it tonight, and then I thought, because well, I thought, oh, you know, Owen will have seen it. Okay, we can both chat about it. And I thought, oh, two hours. Oh, gee, I'm sick of these bloody two-hour films that shouldn't be two hours long. And also, I just got to the point where I was like, I just can't be bothered. Yeah. I, I, it did not excite me at all, mm. um, especially after hearing what you'd already thought of it and some other reviews. It just seemed like it was a real five. Five out of ten. Mm. There you go, type film. I just couldn't be asked. Yeah, so. I mean, I probably, in terms of how how much enjoyment I got out of it, probably similar to Pitch Black. But at the same time, I it it really annoyed me with that the way that it yeah. dealt with the gay character in it. Um, so yeah, instead you stayed okay. home and you watched the England game and yeah, actually, which you'd have gone to probably the worse. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There we are then. That's this week's podcast almost done. Recommendations for next week. Uh, Owen, you kick us off with that. Uh, yes, there is a film coming out on Friday in the cinema, uh, which is going to get a lot of attention. It's by Ron Howard, and you might have heard of it because the trailer's been playing about every single time you've gone to the cinema in the last two or three months, I imagine. Uh, Rush with... Um, the story of Nicky Lauda and James Hunt's rivalry. And I've got an article on the website which goes into more detail about why people should watch it, but I think people should. As a person who isn't a fan of Formula One, I find it very exciting and a great drama. So, yeah, that's my recommendation, Rush. And we'll be reviewing that next and week we will as be well. Reviewing Me and Steve week, yeah. hopefully getting the chance to watch that this weekend. Yeah, I'm going to hobble off to see that. I've got nothing better to do in my life. <laughs> Um, I am recommending something from television. Um, Monday Monday night, ITV is showing Hot Fuzz again, but I'm not revo- uh, reviewing. <laughs> I'm not recommending that. The nightly viewing. Yeah. <laughs> I am going to film for twenty past seven on Monday evening. Hot Shots is on. Nice. Starring Charlie Sheen. Get that watched. Yes. And uh, James, what are you recommending for people? I'm recommending uh, something in the shops that you can go and buy. But it's not a film. It's Instead, it's something that has been hugely inspired by films and has uh, the series itself has gone on in turn to inspire films. And this feedback loop of inspiration has gone on and on. It's the first time I've been excited about a computer game for about two years. On Tuesday, the 17th of September... Grand Theft Auto 5 is here. And that is my recommendation for next week. Because that's what I'm going to be doing for the next few weeks. I'm still going to fit in the odd film here and there. But I'm going to be devoting a lot more of my time to Grand Theft Auto 5. And so much so that next week we'll also have a little um, special feature about, to coincide with Grand Theft Auto's release, about the relationship between films and computer games, how they've influenced each other, and um, and trying to answer that question, why has there never been a really good adaptation of a computer game? And so that's my recommendation, Grand Theft Auto Five. And I am going to do an in-depth study on how violent computer games influence young people by killing a prostitute live on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, we didn't talk about that in the production meeting. <laughs> I'm not sure that's been... 
Yeah, exotic. Go for yeah. it. Just make sure you steal the money back afterwards. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's what I learned from Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> and do it to an awesome soundtrack. Mm. There we go. Anyway, that's all for this week. Um, you, We will be back at the same time next week. The website is www.failcritic.com. Uh, we're also on Twitter. So find us there. Join us next week. That's that failed critics as well. You've got to tell them, Steve. <laughs> Just do a Google search. Yeah, they'll, they'll <laughs> critic or something into a search engine. <laughs> we'll be there somewhere. No one's masqueraders, us. It'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah, we haven't got a blue tick on our Twitter profile, have we? <laughs> That's the next stage. When we've got that, we'll know we've made it. Yeah, we need to get verified. Right. <laughs> a beautifully shambolic end to the podcast there. <laughs> Lovely. It's good stuff. Help the humans about to escape. Get your paws off me, you dirty ape. <gasps> he can talk. 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 I can sing. Oh, help me, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas. Oh, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. What's wrong with me? I think you're crazy. Want a second opinion? You're all so lazy. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Oh, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Can I play the piano anymore? Of course you can. Well, I couldn't before. Everything. Oh, I love legitimate theater. The Fell Critics Podcast was devised and produced by James Diamond, hosted by Steve Norman, with contributions from Owen Hughes and Jerry McCauley. Music is provided by Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com. You can find us at failedcritics.com and on Twitter at, at failedcritics. In the next three or four months, in terms of not the blockbusters, but the the you know, the real kind of award season films. Mm. There are some really, really promising films. New David O. Russell film, uh, American Hustle. Mm-hmm. Um, he's banged that out in less than a year. Uh, mm. That looks, that actually looks really good. Um, yeah, a few other well, Gravity, of course. Yeah, and and I was going to say Rush, which is out. And Rush, yeah, so. yeah exactly. Which is um, which is our review next week, and you've already seen it as well, and we're very impressed. So. I, I, I'm quite excited about awards season this year, and there's bound to be a few more that have kind of slipped under the radar as well. What I will say is um, 12 Years a Slave is getting its UK premiere at the London Film Festival in October, alongside Captain Phillips, a new Paul Greengrass film starring Tom Hanks as uh, a freighter captain whose ship gets uh, boarded by Somali pirates. It looks like a more all-action version of... Um, a hijacking, which I really enjoyed earlier uh, this year. The Palm Door winner, Blue is the Warmest Colour, which is the, mm. or, which it seems to be known as the three-hour lesbian drama. <laughs> so I'm all in for that. Uh, and Jonathan Glazer's Under the Skin as well, the first um, film since, since I think it's about in about eight years from Jonathan Glazer, the former uh, pop music uh, video director. He did Sexy Beast as well, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Or was that someone oh, else? Yeah. I think yeah. It was, yeah, uh, about Scott. It looks a bit... Has anyone seen the trailer for it? No, I've not seen it yet. Mental. Scarlett Johansson in a kind of um, the man who fell to earth type 
affair. Scarlett Johansson is an alien from another planet, and she drives a van around Scotland, um, luring young men into it, and then sucking out their life force. Uh, it looks quite Lynchian. Mm. looks utterly bizarre, uh, and had people booing and cheering <laughs> it at Venice, which is always the sign of a film I want to. So there's a lot. We, uh, end of this month, we're going to have our autumn preview, and I'm sure we'll we'll pick up on a few more of those films then, but that's the news for this week. If you're going to go around any country sucking out people's life forces, Scotland the best one to pick? Yes, probably. Yeah, we've, yeah. Should, should, might as well just piss off our Scottish <laughs> listeners. As well, but you know. it's not exactly the country for oh, the most it, vibrant. Could it be? Yeah. There's, yeah, there's not a lot of locals <laughs> there. Uh, there is that. Oh God, this is, I I love Glasgow. I, hopefully, the people of Scotland will have listened to the Glasgow Film Festival podcast I did back in February and realised that I love the place, and I hold no truck with Steve's casual racism. <laughs> Scots aren't a race. I can't be racist towards them. Okay. I'm fine on that ground. <laughs> a technicality. Yes. Uh, up next is what we've been watching. What we've been watching then, um, and James, why don't you start us off this week? Okay, yeah, this week I watched a film which I meant to see in the cinema. I actually tried to catch a Glasgow Film Festival, but I, I wasn't able to get a screening of it there. And then it came and went quite quickly in my local cinema as well. It's a film called Robot and Frank. It's the debut film released earlier this year by Jake Schreier. It stars Frank Langella, Susan Sarandon, James Marsden, Liv Tyler, and the voice of Peter Sarsgaard. Basically, it's set in the near future, which, if you ask me, that's, the near future is one of my favourite eras for films to be set in. I really love the not-too-distant future. Because I, I find it disappointing because I should have a hoverboard. See, what I like about it is it goes, do you know what, we probably won't have hoverboards yet. Although we will have really helpful robots by the look of it. Um, and it, it's a great era for indie sci-fi films as well because you don't need to do too much to make it... Yeah, I think Loop, that helped with Looper. Looper wasn't set too far in the future, and so you could make it still recognisable. Um, and it, for me, this film, it, it really helps a film like this, because this film didn't cost a lot, um, but you don't. it doesn't need to splash all its money up on screen. Basically, Langella stars as Frank, who's a retired jewel thief, who at the beginning of the film, is showing early signs of dementia. And his son, played by James Marsden, gives him what he calls a, a robot butler uh, as a gift. It's to help Frank out around the house, tidy up the place, because Frank still lives on his own. Frank reluctantly accepts this robot. He doesn't trust it, but he knows that the alternative is being put in a home. And then the film follows the journey of Frank and the robot's growing friendship. And they soon they start planning one last heist together because frank sees that the robot and its innocence but also its agility and its ability to break locks could be the ideal partner and you've got a bit of a kind of odd couple um culture clash film going on as well it's actually a really sweet film langella's fantastic in it especially when you consider that for a lot of the time he's acting opposite a piece of plastic um with the voice added in later so he does a brilliant job uh, really captures fine balance between Frank's hard and caustic outer shell. He's really sarcastic to people. He's rude. He's obnoxious. Um, but there's this vulnerability 
that he kind of knows that his memory's going. He lives on his own. His daughter and his son don't really spend a lot of time with him. So he's hiding that vulnerability as well. And he, he plays both sides of that really well. It's got some really funny moments. It's not a laugh a minute type film. Um, but a lot of the lines will leave you with a nice broad smile on your face rather than leaving you rolling on the floor. And actually, in a lot of ways, it reminds me a little bit of Safety Not Guaranteed last year. It's kind of this year's Safety Not Guaranteed for me. It's um, sci-fi rooted in a kind of realism. Um, It's about an outsider who lives in a rural location, struggles to interact with his community, and then this unlikely call to adventure for him as well. And it's just as likeable as that film. It's it's important to remember that it's not all sweetness and light. Some of the scenes of Frank's condition are quite heartbreaking, actually. Um, and there's a really poignant parallel between the corruption of his human memory and the memory of the machine that he's living with as well. Film, It's refreshingly quite cynicism-free. It's also wonderfully brief at 90 minutes as well. We all know how much... I like that. Um, lovely performances. Susan Sarandon's brilliant as ever. Um, so I'd say Susan Sarandon, Frank Langella, wonderful kind of chemistry they've got on screen. Highly recommend it. Excellent. Um, Owen, your film is? Uh, well, the film I'm going to review is a Studio Ghibli film, um, even though we're going to do a Studio Ghibli special soon. Um <laughs> But basically, <laughs> well, what happened was I thought we were going to be doing the Studio Ghibli episode today. So over the past uh, sort of five or six days, all I've really watched are Studio Ghibli movies to try and get up to speed. So now I haven't got anything else to talk about. So I'm going to have to pick a, a, a Ghibli film. Uh, and I'm picking one which I actually ha- I love. Uh, honestly, I love it. I don't normally love Studio Ghibli films. Some of them I've, I've watched and I've quite... Um, appreciated or enjoyed on a certain level. Uh, I think I mentioned before that I watched Ocean Waves, which was which was my favourite until I watched um, Whisper of the Heart, which is um, it, although it's actually um, written by uh, Miyazaki, it's directed by a different guy called Yoshifumi Kondo. Um, but it's just a, an animation about um, a young girl. She's she's you know she's a bookworm. She spends all the time. Um, either at the library or just fantasizing about um, things that she's going to do with her life and she doesn't really know what it is that she wants to do and she meets a boy who's um, quite ambitious and it sort of spurs her on to do stuff and it also makes her quite depressed about how she's she's going nowhere even though she's only 14 and it's just a really sweet animation and I, I, I... yeah, like I say, I really, I really loved it. It's, it's just such a, a romantic story, and I, I kind, I kind of love how whimsical and nostalgic it is. And it, compared to some of the fantasy stories that G, Studio Ghibli have made, that I've not really gotten on with, um, I tend to prefer the ones that are based in more kind of realism. And, and it, although there, there are certain points in this story where it does go slightly. Uh, out there and a bit sort of fantasy like it's mainly grounded in a realism about this story of this girl who's it's like a coming of age story I suppose in many ways um, but it's that nostalgic quality um, which I, I think is present in in Ghibli's best films and that's what I want from their movies and that's what the strongest element of, of Whisper of the Heart is 
Um, and I don't think none of their films have really captured that feeling of being young and both ambitious and clueless at the same time quite as well as, as this has. And uh, Shizuki, who, Shizuku, sorry, who's the, the main character, it's, it's her struggle to find her place in the world, um, which is just so beautifully constructed. And it, I, I, <laughs> there were times during it where it's just so sweet and I just you just almost want to cry and laugh at the same time. It's just, yeah, I wasn't expecting to love it quite as much as I did. And uh, it's just it's just fantastic. And it's one of those films, actually, where you think... If you were the same age as the main character, if you were sort of 13 or 14 or 15 even, and you were watching it, you'd probably find it quite a relatable story in a lot of ways because you think it's the same sort of problems you're going through and it's that parents don't really understand what's happening, you know. But I'm I'm kind of glad I've watched it as an adult rather than as a kid because I think the the benefit of being able to just reflect back on your life at that age kind of gives it an extra quality because you pick up on how absurd some of the more complex social relationships that have, and structures that have been built up around this girl are but at the same time you realize that actually when you're that age they are these big dramatic things that mm. happen in your life and it's just it, it, honestly i can't recommend it enough really i've probably said too much now and saying like i'm just gushing over it and i haven't really got anything meaningful to say but <laughs> it's it's just a beautiful film i loved it Everything, the music, the animation, the characters, everything. That's that sounds like a top recommendation. I'll give that a go because I, conversely to you, I've struggled a little bit with the the more kind of the realism mm. side of Ghibli. Uh, apart from Grave of the Fireflies, which we've kind of spoken about on here, and we'll save that for our little Ghibli corridor of praise section. Sure. Uh, but yeah, I, I've struggled a little bit, but when. I know exactly how you mean. Sometimes when you've when you've really liked a film, it's actually difficult to express it on this podcast. I've had the where I've really really enjoyed a film. Sometimes you've got less to say mm. just because it it was just brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> you, know, you just want so, people to watch it, and you get frustrated yeah. that people don't love it as much as you do. And it's just yeah, it's that it's definitely it's definitely that <laughs> that sort of film for me. One that I, I just love, and I just want to make sure everybody's seeing, and I'm recommending it to everybody all the time, and to the point now where I think I'm probably quite annoying because I've just gone on about it to everybody all the time. I've tweeted about one... it a hundred times. And... <laughs> <laughs> Is that one you had to get through Love Film or was it on the Film 4 season recently? It, yeah, know? well, I don't, I don't know if it was recently because it was, it was it's been on my planner for a very long time. So it has been on Film 4. But then, it has so been on Film They might show it again. Yeah, but I've just cool. gone out and bought the Blu-ray because I've... Oh, look at you, big spender. Yeah, <laughs> But if you like sort of uh, the the more realism side of Ghibli, so stuff like um, uh, Ocean Waves, which I mentioned, or Only Yesterday, or even stuff from from um, My Neighbor Totoro, then mm. you'll probably probably like Whisper of the Heart. Okay. Okay. Well, the film that I'm reviewing uh, has a hundred percent rating by critics on Rotten Tomatoes, 95% from non-critics. It was nominated for four Academy Awards. It's directed and produced by Alfred Hitchcock. Stars James Stewart and Grace Kelly was parodied brilliantly by The Simpsons, was reimagined terribly by Shia LaBeouf in a a film called Disturbia. It is (laughs) Rear Window. 
And how is your ankle, Steve? Um, not better than it was. Um, Good. Yes. In... And did you witness uh, any attempted murders or anything like that during no, your... I think we should give the listeners some context. If you <laughs> listened last week, you'd have known that my recommendation for this week was to watch Rear Window. And in a twist of irony, I sprained my ankle playing football and therefore couldn't do much other than sit in my room. Well, actually, James Stewart had less to do. He didn't have an Xbox, so he didn't have that choice. <laughs> or, he did have Grace Kelly visiting him, yeah. though. Yeah, that, that is. I definitely didn't have that or anything near <laughs> that. I did have an Xbox and Netflix that are pretty much up to date with Breaking Bad after that. Anyway, I couldn't really witness any murders or potential murders out my bedroom window because it looks over a cow field. So... Um, but yes, in a strange twist of irony, I was in the same position as James Stewart minus Grace Kelly in Rear Window. I'd seen it a long time ago, hadn't seen it for a while though. Um, but yes, it is typically um, tense as you'd expect from a Hitchcock film. Um, basically, James Stewart is a photographer who breaks his leg, is basically bedridden for the, for the time being, not being able to do much so just look spies on his neighbors curtain twitches for for a uh lack of a better term and then mm. discovers or thinks he discovers his neighbor murdering his wife um and he has to try and convince various other people his friend who's a policeman and his his girlfriend grace kelly and everything that it has happened try to get them to find out more because he can't put his stuff in his bedroom um and it is, well, as the critics and everyone else who seems to have watched it agrees, a fantastic film, very tense. Still stands up well now, even though it is it's over 50 years old now, isn't it? Yeah. And it still stands up well now. Much like Vertigo, when we watched that, it hasn't aged badly at all. It's aged brilliantly. It's still just as, you know... One wonders why they had to get Shia LaBeouf to do a kind of remake of it when they could just put this on instead. Oh yeah, it's, yeah, no, it's a crazy idea. Um, no, I think this is one of the well, a, I think this is one of Hitchcock's best. Full stop. Uh, and it seems to be it's become the one that I'd say movie fans rather than film critics cite as their favourite Hitchcock usually. Um, and out of most of Hitchcock's, I think this is one of the ones which also hasn't dated. It just it feels timeless. Uh, great performances from Grace Kelly, but particularly, obviously, James Stewart. Um, a simple idea, executed brilliantly. You can, yeah, you could watch this in any decade it's, and it's, genuinely enjoy it. It's not just the tension, you know, of, of trying to find out discover whether the neighbour did do the murder but there's the whole kind of little neighbourhood community that he overwatches mm. and how they change within the events of the film and the whole kind of idea of community and friendship and well not friendship but you know neighbour you know being good neighbours and you know that kind of thing and the way that dynamic changes throughout the film kind of as a, as a background thing to the main the main plot yeah yeah, no, I, I totally agree. It's, it's a really nice world that Hitchcock creates there and allows the viewer just to 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 be that voyeur that James Stewart's character is. Um, I, I, I adore Rear Window. I watch it 
at least once every year, every couple of years, uh, a minimum. Brilliant film. Oh, have you seen it out of out of interest? Yeah, I've seen Rear Window. Um, I agree as well that it's just a timeless film. Um, I think partly what helps it seem like it's not aged is how it's set like um uh, like a play almost. You know, you've got your very very yeah. specific sets, and you can sort of move the, the the camera sort of pans between different places, but it also feels like it's just taking place in one set. Um, and of course, the acting in it is is fantastic. So I think that kind of sets it up to be a film that's that's it doesn't need to feel like it's going to date at all because it could be happening now, really. The only difference is they haven't got mobile phones or internet or, or TV. So it's, um, yeah, I really, I really like Rear Window. I'd prob- I, wouldn't, I don't know if I'd say it's my favourite, but it's definitely one of my favourites mm. of Hitchcock's. Excellent. Uh, that rounds off uh, what we've been watching. And then up next is the long-awaited return of Triple Bill. So, Triple Bill is back this week uh, with an uh, eye on a new release review of About Time. Uh, we have been asked to pick our favourite movie time travellers. Not time travelling films, time travellers in film. Uh, I will start off. I took this as time travellers that isn't Marty McFly or anyone from Back to the Future, because that would be a bit boring and, and unoriginal. So I yeah. started off with Bill and Ted from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and also Bill and Ted's Bodacious Journey. Um, bogus Journey? Bogus Journey. Is it not both in different places like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles can't be called Ninja Turtles in England because it's too violent and ninjas and stuff? <laughs> I don't think because so. they keep because it's, it's a bad journey. I, I think it's their bogus journey. It is. You're right. Go, yeah. Yeah. Any, Anyway, I'll go with the first Although film. Although, was... we should use the word bodacious more often <laughs> yes. these days. That. We will. It stars Keanu Reeves in one of his um, best film roles, in my opinion. It all goes downhill after The Matrix, in my mind. Um, anyway, they are two friends who um, want to be rock stars, but they basically are no better than playing air guitar essentially they're not very good also they've got to pass a history exam um or else one of them i forget which now i think it's ted will get sent by his dad to military school breaking up the band which is no good so rufus played by george carlin comes from the future to set them on the right path give him a time traveling phone box to go back in time they go and get many characters from history to pass the history test they do everyone's happy brilliant film everyone loves it yeah, and do you know what? I'm going to just go jump in here and say kind of crossover because my choice was Ruf. One of my choices was Rufus. Rufus, I yeah, I just loved him. First time I saw Rufus appear in that the telephone box, oh, he's just so damn cool. George Carlin is so damn cool in this film because, like you say, um, Bill and Ted are lovable losers, aren't they? Um, we we love them, but they're muppets. They're idiots. But um, Rufus has got a cool name. He's got the cool futuristic robes. Um, he comes from a time of peace and where everyone has to be excellent to each other. Uh, yeah, so one of my... Just because we're talking about Bill and Ted, I'm, I'm going to have to say one of my choices is Rufus from Bill and Ted's Anyway, Adventure. exciting news. There will be a complete trilogy by the looks of it. Uh there, no way! Yeah, there was a there was a yep, script sorry. around. Uh, there was a script around in 2010, 2012. Both 
Alex Winter and Reeves said they liked the finished script. Um, and in August of last year... Well, Alex Winter's going to, isn't oh, yeah, he? He's he can't get on film for love nor money. <laughs> um, it, in August of last year, Dean Parasot, who was the director of Galaxy Quest, signed on to the project as a director. Um, the movie's not been given the green light yet, but we could be having a complete Bill and Ted trilogy. Wow. Although um, George Carlin's dead, isn't he? Yep. Yes. Oh, that's a shame. So uh, Rufus will not be there. It ruins the whole time travel aspect, doesn't it? How are they going to avoid <laughs> not having Rufus in it? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, let's see. I'm being a bit liberal with my next choice, but there have been movies made of it, and I'm staying with uh, time-travelling telephone boxes. Oh, yeah. And I'm picked in Doctor Who. Nearly in my list, but I decided against it. Played played by many an actor, currently Matt Smith, uh, although John Hurt will be in the 50th anniversary special, which will be very interesting to see. Now going to be next, going to be played by Peter Capaldi as well. Um, he is a Time Lord from Gallifrey who travels around the universe in a, in a phone box, sort of helping people out. I can't really say much more than that because it's not particularly one film. It's 50 years worth of television and a couple of movies. So, oh, yeah, I was going to say, there are a couple of movies. Like there's the Peter Cushing movies mm. from mm. the 60s, um, Daleks Invasion Earth and the other one I can't remember the name of. And, of course, there was Paul McGann in Doctor Who the movie in mm. the mid-90s, 95, possibly. Yeah, which wasn't um, great. Where, where all of a sudden the Doctor was half-human or something. Mm. Yeah, it's... it's the, the film. It's a shame because Paul McGann is a really good, and this is where I come across. This is where I get to be a bit geeky for once because you guys talk about comic books and stuff like that. Um, Paul McGann's um, Eighth Doctor audio stories are absolutely bloody fantastic. Um, made by Big Finish. Um, yeah, big fan of Paul McGann as the Eighth Doctor in the audio stories. Really, really good stuff. So there you go. Mm. Uh, yeah, the film the film wasn't great, but it kind of let me pick it, pick the Doctor as a, one of my favourite time travellers from from movies. Let let me in the back door, if you will. Um, also, like the fact that Robert Mugabe's got some of these hidden episodes somewhere buried away. See, just when you think he can't get more evil, <laughs> you throw in an actual real life dictator. Yeah. Um, Yes, and my final one is I couldn't find any other time travellers who had a phone box, so <laughs> I had to leave that dynamic there. I went with uh, George Taylor from uh, Planet of the Apes, played by Charles and Heston brilliantly, uh, Mark Wahlberg not so brilliantly, and Troy McClure in the musical <laughs> version of Planet of the Apes. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. There's a sort of crossover, but I'll let you finish and then... When I do mine, I'll sort of explain the difference. Okay. So, yes, George Taylor, best best played by Charlton Heston, obviously, uh, was an astronaut who um, who went off into space. Obviously, that's where astronauts go. He got to nearly the speed of light, crash-landed on a planet that was ruled by monkeys, apes, and we all know the end. Um, but it's a fantastic film with him as a central character, so... That's why I picked that one. I won't ruin the end for people who haven't seen it, because that'd be a bit unfair. But maybe instead of me talking, James should just edit in the Troy McClure stage musical version of <laughs> Planet of the Apes. I might well do that, actually, yeah. <laughs> Dr. Zeus, Dr. Zeus. 
Yeah. Uh, right. Both of you have had crossover with me, so I don't know who to go to next. Uh, <laughs> well, I've already mentioned one of mine. Yeah, you, um, you might as well get the, get the other two out of the way then. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, Rufus was one of mine. Like you, I thought, well, I can't say Doc Brown, stroke Martin McFly, um, stroke Biff, actually. Um, because, yeah, Back to the Future is not only the ultimate um, time travel film, but one of the ultimate films of all time. Uh, and everyone's seen that, and there's been plenty of stuff talked about there. So I've gone for three films that people might not have seen or might have missed. Um and the first one was Bill and Ted's, which most people will have seen, to be fair. Um, the next one is a film that very few people will have seen. Um, because it's loads of people think it's not very good. On IMDb, it's got a 5.6 rating, which isn't promising. Um, it's got 25 from Metacritic. But I saw this one night on... Sky Movies 4 or something like that about 8 years ago and I I just really really enjoyed it it's also a remake um, it's a remake of a foreign film um, called Le Visiteurs and it's an American film called Just Visiting and my time traveller is Tibalt played by Gene Reno um, have either of you two seen Just Visiting? No I I've heard, even about heard it. of it yeah. I've definitely heard Based- of it Tybalt uh, is a knight from the 12th century and um, himself and his valet are cursed by a witch and to try and get rid of the curse they make use of the services of a wizard played by Malcolm McDowell. This, this, this was made in 2001 and it's got Malcolm McDowell in so you can just see the kind of budget we're looking at here. It's, uh, they, unfortunately the spell goes wrong. And they are transported to 21st century New York. And um, where Tibalt ends up falling in love, meeting and falling in love with a woman uh, played by Christina Applegate, who resembles the woman he wanted to marry back in the 12th century. Also stars Tara Reid. Okay, this, this, I'm really not selling this film. <laughs> yeah. it, for me, it actually does the whole culture class thing very well. It's too... It's a French knight and his peasant from the 12th century in modern-day New York. He ends up drinking from a toilet. All the uh, usual kind of, oh, this is crazy. But uh, for me, the film's got a lot of charm. And Gene Reno carries it off really well. Gene Reno continues the role he did. It was originally a French film, and Gene Reno recreates his role from the French film, which I have seen, and actually is a better film. But that wasn't the first one I saw, so this... um, uh, this is the one I went for. So it's it's Tibalt from Just Visiting. You'll probably see it late night on a Sky Movies channel at some point. It's don't bother don't bother like getting it from Love Film or anything like that. It's not that good, but I I enjoyed it and it stuck with me. Um, and then my final choice, rather than being someone from the Middle Ages sent to our time, is someone who was sent from our time to the Middle Ages. And that's Ash from Evil Dead Army <laughs> of Darkness. Nice. Um, those of you who don't know, he's uh, Ash at the end of Evil Dead 2, after finally defeating the de- demons and spirits, is sent back in time to 1300 AD, um, armed only with his... It's a long time since I've seen it, but armed only with his chainsaw. Uh, I think his car goes back with him as well, doesn't it? Yeah. 
Um, yeah, now you're asking. Yeah, <laughs> um, uh, where uh, there are two kind of medieval clans at war, and during the course, uh, he, ra- he accidentally raises the dead, uh, army of the undead, a clone version of Ash comes to lead the army of the undead and ash manages to using his knowledge of 1970s technology (laughs) manages to defeat his clone self the army of the dead and unite all the factions uh in blissful harmony it's it's definitely it's the episode of the series where sam raimi went more for the comedy than for the it's very goofy yeah yeah it's it is really a Bruce Campbell film. Um, it's funny. It rounds off the series quite nicely. It's bizarre sense of humour actually. Um, and yeah, I, I wanted to pick some people who were kind of sent in time rather than were time travellers as such. So that's that's my last choice. Yeah, hail to the king, baby. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and Owen, your your choices. Um, well, I wasn't going to start with it, but I will, since we've talked about Planet of the Apes already, but I'd picked um, two characters together. I'd sort of cheated a little bit. But if you're having Bill and Ted, then I'm going to have Cornelius and Zira, um, played by Roger McDowell and Kim Hunter, in Escape from the Planet of the Apes, um, which follows the events from Beneath the Planet of the Apes, which is the worst film in the series. Um, but they get sent back in time and crash land in the 70s, uh, the 1970s, and they become celebrities... Um, among the sort of humans who are curious about them because they are apes from the future who bring about a message that the world is going to end and it's partly because of the apes. Um, So, of course, that sort of incites the fear inside the government about what they're going to do about it, can they do anything about it. Um, But, yeah, I I think they're actually really quite cool characters. And their story is a, a very sort of tragic story their world has been destroyed they're dumped into this place they don't really know anything about people treat them as strangers and you know almost like circus apes at times because they're just seen as these these things that have come from the future and they're just there for people's amusement at times so it's you know it's quite a tragic story in many respects but they're, they're very good characters i think probably zira is developed throughout the course of the series of the films better than cornelius who's just the scientist really Zero was the one. If you've seen the first Planet of the Apes, um, she's the one who calls um, Charlton Heston bright eyes. She's, you know, she's the the one who sort of oversees everything. Really, she's the researcher and looks after all the the humans that they capture. So the roles kind of get reversed a little bit with this one, where she's under observa- observation by various people, um, and all that they want to do really is just start a family. Um, live life normally or what, what they what they think would be normally um, but they're just people who are from a different time put into a different place and yeah it's, I, I think they're really interesting characters and, and they're in a very interesting situation in Escape from the Planet of the Apes um, much like Charlton Heston is obviously in the first film um, but I thought it's kind of a, it's a whereas that one's more of like a, a, a almost a sort of action science fiction film in, in Escape from the Planet of the Apes, it's more like um, sort of drama, really. And it's a comedy as well in, in a lot of respects. But it's also, yeah, I quite like them two characters in it. So they were, they were going to be my second choice. What was going to be my first choice um, was Admiral James T. Kirk, 
of the USS Enterprise <laughs> as played by William Shatner. Um, I think we're in agreement on the podcast, aren't we? That, um, and it has been raised a few times in the past. Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan, is probably the best movie in the series. Yeah. That's good. Okay. doesn't really feature that much time travel in it. Um, but the best example of time travel to me in the Star Trek franchise, and there's quite a lot of it that you could choose from, is Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, where Kirk and crew have to travel back in time to fetch a whale. In, from 1980 <laughs> yeah <laughs> it is bizarre it's just a strange story it's obviously just Leonard Nimoy's way of trying to um, you know he, he was a bit of a hippie wasn't he um, yeah back in the back in the day so it's his story of you know save the whales um, but yeah I mean <laughs> even excusing the fact that it's sort of quite a so shit it's good time travel story with the most uh, absurd plot to it Kirk is brilliant in it it's, it's probably his best role as that sort of slightly arrogant um, bull headed captain who thinks he knows everything about everything you know everything about earth culture he's you know he's read about it in a book and he's experienced parts of it and he knows what, what it's about but then he just gets so much of it wrong and it's hilarious um, it's just the perfect story for the more comedic um, Captain Kirk rather than yeah. the sort of heroic uh, leader of a, a, a ship. But it, yeah, it's a proper comedy sci-fi and I think Shatner's just completely on form in Star Trek IV. Um, yeah. yeah, my final choice. Um, I could easily have picked a Van Damme film for this triple bill. I was thinking about it with Time Cop. Yeah. Um, and, but I thought, no, because I've... You know, he seems to come up in every single one of my <laughs> my triple bills or my articles for the sites or the best film on TV picks. So I decided to leave him for this week. And my man crush this year anyway is kind of John Wayne, but I don't think he's made any films with time traveling. Um, so I'm going to have to be really boring and say that Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, in James Cameron's The Terminator as the title character is my final choice. Um, probably massively expected and there would be Quite rightly, outrage, I think, from listeners if nobody had picked the Terminator, um, a robot that's yeah. sent back in time to destroy it. Yeah, blah, 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 blah. We all know Terminator. So I'm really surprised neither of you two put him on your list, by the way. It was one that I people had already kind of tweeted it in. Yeah. I thought, I'd, and I just knew you'd have it covered. I've got to have him, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he doesn't have a phone box, no, but. Um, but yeah, Terminator, just a, I'm not going to go on about it. We've talked about it already. People know everything there is to know about Terminator yeah. nowadays. It's just a, a really cool film and character. Yeah. Okay, that wraps up Triple Bill. Um, uh, just to say, we did have a few people tweet in theirs. Um, I'll just quickly say, most of them got picked up here. Uh, Tom Mould, at Tom underscore Cargo, said... Surely the T-800 is up there. <laughs> uh, Nathan Human said, Doc from Back to the Future. Hector from Time Crimes, which I've not yeah, seen yet. Yeah. Um, and James Cole from 12 Monkeys. Um, and Paul Fisher said, Bill and Ted. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, some uh, some nice choices there. So thanks thanks for those guys. Okay. Uh, yeah, so that wraps up Triple Bill. Brief break, then new release reviews of Riddick and About Time.
so our new reviews this week are about time and reading as we've just done a triple bill on time travelers uh james is going to start us off by reviewing about time uh here's a clip though first ah tim come in uh do sit down it's very formal well um yeah this is an odd moment for me because i had the same moment with my father when i just turned 21 and after it my life was never the same so i approach it pretty um nervously okay when you're ready it's all very mysterious uh right tim my dear son uh the uh the simple fact is the men in this family have always had the ability to this is going to sound strange be prepared for strangeness get ready for spooky time uh, but there's this family secret and the secret is that the men in the family can travel in time well more accurately travel back in time we can't travel into the future this is such a weird joke it's seriously not a joke so you're saying that you and Grandad and his brothers could all travel back in time? Absolutely. And you still do? Absolutely. Although it's not as dramatic as it sounds. It's only in my own life. I can only go to places where I actually was and can remember. I can't kill Hitler or shag Helen of Troy, unfortunately. Okay, stop. Um, if it's true, uh, which it isn't. Although it is. Although it isn't, obviously. But if it was, which it's not. Which it is. Which it isn't. But if it was, how would I actually... The how is the easy bit, in fact. You go into a dark place. Big cupboards are very useful, generally. Toilets at a pinch. Then you clench your fists like this. Think of the moment you're going to, and you'll find yourself there. After a bit of a stumble and a rumble and a tumble. Wow. Okay, so that was a clip of About Time. James, tell us all about it. Okay, yeah, that clip there... Um, was uh, featured a young man called Dom Hall Gleason, but in the film he's called Tim, and you will have recognised the unmistakable voice of the wonderful Bill Nye there. This is the latest and apparently last uh, film directed by Richard Curtis. It's also written by him as well, and stars um, as well as Dom Hall Gleason, Bill Nye, Rachel McAdams, Lindsay Duncan and Tom Hollander. Now, let me just start by saying, I, I need to get something out there. If you don't like any of Richard Curtis's previous films, so the ones that he wrote like Four Weddings and Funeral and Notting Hill, or his more recent writer-director productions like The Boat That Rocked, and especially Love Actually, you won't like this. At all. Don't go and watch it. Don't do it to yourselves. It hasn't been made for you. Okay, so let's to get that out there, because... Richard Curtis, for me, is fast becoming a genre of his own. Um, his films have very particular tropes. Uh, and kind of like most in the horror genre, the dumb action genre, or the musical genre, uh, most of those films, the majority of films in those genres, will not convert a non-believer. And it's absolutely the same here. If you are not someone who is going to enjoy a Richard Curtis film, you're not going to find anything here um, that will make you change your mind. Now... 
The story itself is about a 21-year-old man who's told that all the men in his family can travel in time, uh, but it's only along their own timeline, never forward in time. It's only places they've been to, uh, the clip there, and saying, so, yeah, they can't go back and kill Hitler, for example. Now, this what, being... What, a if, rich... what if he was... What if it was, like, the granddad who was, like, 95 or something? Could he go back and kill Hitler? Probably could. Uh... There are other complications that get put in there as well, though, which gives us a little bit of the the drama of the films. I won't spoil it for anyone. Uh, but obviously, this being a Richard Curtis film, no one goes back to kill despotic dictators. Um, Tim, the the young man who's just turned 21, uses his power purely for good reasons, and in particular, uses it for love. You know, again, this being a Richard Curtis <laughs> film, the cast is ludicrously white middle class, and just ruddy, bloody, lovely. Should, Even the sh- knobhead. He should have thrown in a mental cousin, though, that was going back in time, doing all kinds of <laughs> killing them. <laughs> that, would, that would have been quite Under interesting. The yeah, yeah it could, kind of, and then Tim had to become some kind of time cop to track him down and stuff, yeah. But it's, it's not that kind of time travel film. Um, obviously, this being a Richard Curtis film, London looks like the kind of place where no one ever sleeps rough, let alone gets mugged. Um, Cornwall features very heavily as the family home of one of those annoyingly perfect middle-class families who do crazy stuff like drink tea on the beach and play table tennis in the shed. It's got an MOR soundtrack featuring the music of Sugar Babes and possibly the Lighthouse family, I couldn't remember. Um, Also has... I've only really noticed it in the last couple of Richard Curtis films. He's got quite an adolescent, like, teenage male view of sex and relationships um and i can't work out if that's realistic because at heart we're all adolescent males and he's just he's just not guarding himself I, um, part of me thinks maybe he's just not self-censoring he's going no this is what i think about sex and relationships there's a really bad moment in the boat that rocked which is not a good film um where essentially a rape happens, but it's all friendly and jokey. Um, there's a bit of context there. Uh, yeah. Man's having sex with a woman, and then he sneaks out because they want to get one of the younger cat men there to lose their virginity. So he backs away and lets the younger man come in and finish having sex with the woman. Now that's that's rape, that okay? Is, but it's done in a yeah. lovely, cuddly Richard Curtis way. There's nothing like that here, but there are moments where. Rachel McAdams appears to be getting down to into her underwear for a bit of frivolity and for no reason. And it's almost like, at times it feels like Richard Curtis is going, brilliant, I can get Rachel McAdams in her underwear. Now, to be fair to him, man can get Rachel McAdams in her underwear. I, I've got, <laughs> who am I to argue with that? But it does feel, at times, a little bit like a teenager has written this. Um and and I'll be honest, let's not even get into the plot holes here. Uh, convenient narrative solutions caused by introducing the time travel idea. Be cl- this isn't Primer, okay? Um, there's no need for a diagram, Steve. You're fine there. Good. Um, and at one point, uh, Tim's father, played by Bill Nye, talks about the butterfly effect and goes, don't worry about it, we've been lucky. But that, there you go, so that's that sorted. Um, it's even more offhand than when Looper uh, tried to like get people to not question it's just like yeah no it just doesn't happen to us we're fine Um, it's sickly sweet Uh, Dom Hall Gleeson 
sounds, as you will have heard from that clip, exactly like a young Hugh Grant. It's quite scary. It is like Richard Curtis gone. I need I need someone young, but they need to sound exactly like Hugh Grant because that's what I know. Uh, it's over long. It's over two, just over two hours long. Whoa. Baggy in the middle. Um, yet, and yet, um, I left with a tear in my eye and a smile on my face. And I liked the film. And this goes back to my warning, my caveat at the top. There's something about Richard Curtis films which will manipulate you. And if you are willing, and if you enjoy that kind of manipulation. But people go to see horror films because they want to be scared. I go to see a Richard Curtis film because I want my heartstrings tugged at. And I want to believe that people are inherently good. It's nice. No one criticises Woody Allen, on the whole, for making films about a very small subset of people who live in an area of New York. Okay, he writes what he knows. No one criticises Frank Capra for his sentimentality. Now, I'm not saying Curtis is even in the same league as Woody Allen and Frank Capra, but he writes what he knows for an audience who enjoy it. Um, And to that end, he's very good at that. This was, for me, it was an enjoyable film. (laughs) Weirdly, the um, the time travel gimmick isn't used as much as I thought it would be. I got the impression this was Richard Curtis's cover version of Groundhog Day, and it isn't anything like that, actually. And the second half of the... In fact, I'd say two-thirds of the film are more just about human relationships, what it's like to be a parent, what it's like to lose someone, what it's like to be in love. They're actually just about general human relationships. Um, the other great thing about this is the cast. Um, Dom Hall Gleason's actually really good in this. Bill Nye, he's as fantastic as he usually is. Tom Hollander is hilarious. Uh, those of you know, he, people who've seen him in British sitcoms will know the kind of thing that Tom Hollander can do. Very, very funny man. Um, Rachel McAdams really quite grounded in this film. She isn't as I expected her to be. The kind of you know, flighty Andy McDowell, American, but she's a genuinely well-rounded character um, who just comes across as quite a normal person, which is weird because apparently Zoe Deschanel was due to play her but had to drop out due to scheduling, and I think that would have wound me up something chronic. Um, So really glad to see Rachel McAdams in it. There's some funny bits. There's some bits that will genuinely put a tear in your eye regardless of your... Uh, your outlook on life and things like that. I I, I was surprised because I expected this to be a grand mess of a disaster and it really isn't. It's actually a rather sweet film about family and about grasping the nettle, carpe diem, living your life in the moment. And I there's for me, there's room for films like this as well as you know the more hard cynical films that are out there as well so i'd i would recommend it but only if you're not the type of person to go and go and i hate richard curtis don't if you can don't just don't bother going to see it don't waste two hours of your life because you'll hate it but if you are the type of person who goes you know what i don't mind seeing a film like that for a couple of hours i quite enjoyed love actually i think you'll get something from it i won't waste two hours of my life then (laughs) 
and that's why I gave that caveat. <laughs> that is exactly why yeah. I gave that caveat because I watched it thinking, right, what am I going to say? I, I was thinking Jerry would loathe this. Owen would be mightily unimpressed. Steve might quite like bits of it. That's that was my thinking. Steve, what are your thoughts on Richard Curtis? I like Love Actually, not seeing the rest. Okay, if you liked Love Actually, I think you'd like this. Don't probably don't. Yeah, you don't actually, need to go see it. It's not what you need to see. Actually, I don't think I like Love Actually. I just like Christmas. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that that it can have that effect, can't mm. it? Christmas. Yeah. yeah, and I don't wouldn't want to sit down somewhere for two hours watching that. I just... Catch it on TV at some point. I think you might be pleasantly surprised, Steve. The, the guy in it, I can't. You said his name, and I, I still not remember. Tom Hall Gleason. Yeah, he yeah. Um, was in an episode of Black Mirror. You know, oh, the was Charlie Brooker thing. I've still not watched any Black Mirror. Yeah, he was really good at that. He was playing like um, a robot, an oh, okay. android type thing. Yeah, he was. Um, he was very good. Bit eerie, he's... but it was yeah. Oh, okay. oh that's really interesting because he's really got the young Hugh Grant thing down yeah, in this. It's stuff. interesting. I, was, well, I couldn't picture him like that, but. Yeah, he sounds like you, Grant, for a start. But he's got the kind of nervous, blustery, middle-class... Oh, 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 I'm terribly sorry. Yeah, mm. he's got that down to a T. Um, really good. And, yeah, I just... Interesting. Oh, and Lindsay Duncan as well. Brilliant in this. I really like Lindsay Duncan. And okay. she she's fantastic as his mother in this as well. And I, I think the strength of this film is... Um, it is in the cast. Um, and one other thing I do just want to say about... Um, Richard Curtis, the man wrote the last episode of uh, well, co-wrote it with Ben Elton the last episode of Blackadder Goes Forth and gets an eternal pass from me, mm. but simply for that one of the best bits of television I've ever seen, So, and I think we sometimes forget that he created co-created Blackadder as well because he's gone on to do quite fluffy, nice stuff but he's always been a, a, a funny man I think Okay, uh, Owen went and saw Riddick before he tells us all about Vin Diesel being all actiony and stuff. Here's a clip of it. Grant any last wishes? I was referring to you. Not that the chains aren't a hot look, but no. I'm not going to straddle you in front of all these good guys. What if I killed all of them first? Easy, boy. There's a lot more trank where that came from. Okay, yeah, so that was a clip of Riddick. Um, Owen, what did you make of it? Hmm, yeah, strange. <laughs> Mixed opinions on it, actually. Um, chronologically, the story carries on from the end of Chronicles of Riddick. So he was in charge of the um, necromongers at the end of Chronicles. And this basically begins with him actually isolated on a desert planet with sort of weird creatures all around trying to kill him. And you don't quite understand what's happened, but you do know that everything is, you know, it's it's sequential. It's carried on from, from the last film. Um, and the first third of the movie, I mean, I did, when I say it's, it's isolated on a sort of desert planet, I do mean he's isolated because there's very little dialogue at all. Everything that comes from the film is through um, narration um, in the first maybe 15, 20 minutes. Um, I mean, Riddick might utter the odd line, but it's it's mostly a, it's 
yeah, very strange. It's it's kind of unique in that sense in the franchise because um, you know even though in Pitch Black he doesn't talk for for very long. Um, it, I mean, it takes him a, a long time before he actually says anything towards the start of Pitch Black because you know when you first see him he's all tied up and he's gagged and stuff. Um, but in this, it's just yeah, it's it's, it's kind of unique in that sense. Um, yeah, I mean, it goes on for quite a bit longer than is necessary as well. This this almost silent part to the point that it gets a bit boring. It it looks good in this with all the the same techniques as was used in Pitch Black with um, you know the sort of color palettes over the screen and it, it, stuff being in the shadows and stuff as you'd expect because he can see in the dark obviously, which means there's lots of contrived scenes of him being in the dark um, <laughs> and. Yeah, so, I mean, it goes on for quite a long time. It does get a little bit boring. I appreciate some aspects of this part were required to set up the rest of the plot, um, particularly with him getting a weird, funky space dog thing as a pet, which is a strange move, um, because it seems quite sentimental for someone who's supposed to be um, a merciless killer. But anyway, in the second half of the film, you get what is basically a remake of Pitch Black, so you get the bounty hunters who've arrived on the planet to try and capture him, partly lured there by Riddick himself as he wants to steal one of their ships to get off the planet. Um, so, yeah, you get more darkness, you get more monsters, um, and the humans, yeah, okay, they, they're monsters themselves, we get it, yeah, we understand they're <laughs> the monsters just as much as the, the weird creatures are. Um, but yeah, it brings some welcome humour to to the script. I don't really like the, the stupid space dog thing. It was just ridiculous. Um, I keep hearing about the space dog. Is it genuinely bizarre bit of cinema or something? It's just a bit weird. I mean, you can... It's Why do people put dogs into films, mm. James? Why are dogs in films? Um, they're, they're cute. cute. People, people like dogs. People yeah. like dogs, but what happens to dogs in every uh, dog, film with a dog in it? Um, well, not uh, they get killed. They not get killed. Bound. Homer bound, they don't. They get killed. They go no. missing. They either make yeah. a miraculous save towards the end of the film, yeah. or they do something that's it's entirely predictable. That's the yeah. main problem with the space dog. As soon right. as it's there, you just know, okay, so he's going to no, form that, an attack yeah, to the dog, and the dog's going to do it's something. It's the loaded gun in the first act, isn't it? It's it going is. to get fired in the third, yeah. Exactly. So, um. The, the, yeah, the, the dog just wound me off because it wasn't anything new and it was just a bit sentimental and didn't really fit, particularly with Riddick's character, who is this, like, cold killer. Um, yeah. So it's a bit strange. Um, maybe it's supposed to show that he's grown over the course of the films, so I don't know. But, he, you know, he's this guy who doesn't have friends, and so to give him a friend, he just plays against what he's supposed to be for me. But, um... Okay. Yeah, but anyway, like I say, it's almost like a like-for-like remake of Pitch Black at times, just with different characters, which is fine, because I think Pitch Black is a solid science fiction action film, really. Um, Mm. And, you know, it it tried to better that style that that Pitch Black had, um, and what made the film so endearing, I think. It polishes it a bit too much, so it it scrubs off some of the the roughness that that made the the first one quite actually enjoyable as a sort of B-movie. Um, and makes it a bit too polished. Well, it could just be because Vin Diesel's, um, you know, he's producing this one. He wants to make sure it's, as, 
it's going to make money to be to first of all he had to i don't know if you read an interview um uh, on film four's website with him where he sort of basically had to put his own house on the line to make this film he had to use it as um Gold. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he pretty much had to back this film himself to get it made because he he loves the character and stuff, you know. It's his mm. it's his project, really. It's his it's it's his thing, and he loves all the, all these like geeky science fiction stuff. So, you know, fair play to him for doing that. Um, and I suppose the most positive aspect of the film is, in a way, the way it, 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 it's how it looks, and I think it it does look more polished, and it's a less gimmicky style than Pitch Black was. It's a bit more subtle um, with those sort of tones. Uh, it, I mean, it's, it's just more of the same, really. Um, which, like I say, it's okay in some respects. You, you hope they'd be a bit more original with it, but at the same time, it, it was a top tried and tested formula and it works much better than the awful Chronicles of Riddick did, um, <laughs> which is terrible. And like I say, the humour does come from pe- from the characters that are introduced, like Dave Batista, who had some funny lines in it, the former WWE wrestler, um, who uh, he looks quite imposing. He has a few funny lines, doesn't really have an awful lot else to do, but then he does what he's supposed to do well. You also get Matt Nable, who was good as this calm but assertive good guy mercenary, if such a thing exists, you know. <laughs> and you get Geordie Moller, who's his complete opposite as this crazy um, Latin American mercenary who's just a bit nuts. Um, one of the, the support characters in it, the, the, I mean, there are a couple of things I don't really like about Riddick, and one of them is the way that it handles the female character in this. Completely oppositely to how the first film in Pitch Black, it does it quite well. You know, it introduces mm. this, this female character who's quite strong and she's the lead in the film almost and the, everything, sort of, the plot follows her rather than, or as much as it does Riddick. In this film, Katie Sackhoff, who is probably best known for her role in Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. She comes across almost as the token woman. Uh, and as such, there's only two roles that she's ever going to play in this. She's either going to be a love interest for somebody, um, or she's going to be a butch hard lesbian. And that's what she is. She's the butch hard lesbian who um, she gets to beat up the men. And um, instead of making her a strong female character, they kind of just make her into a male character who's female. And you know, yeah. it, it, that, that that was a bit aggravating to start with, anyway. But then there's a, this horrible twist with her character, um, which really kind of wound me up a little bit. And partly what, all the good feeling I'd had up to that point through Riddick, I lost a lot of it towards the end because it's just really insulting the way that her character's used and some of the stuff that she, she says and does. Um, and also to, to do with Riddick himself, who makes like a rape quick uh, quip. And you just think... That's not on, really. Yeah. It's just a bit... Especially now he's grown and got a dog. He's oh, yeah, he's, he's meant to be. Yeah, exactly. behind. Obviously not matured at all. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I read a really interesting um, column in online mm. on Empire's uh, website about literally the thing you're talking about, and it sounds like it would have made me hugely angry as well. Yeah. Uh, it's just very uh, inappropriate, and I, I don't yeah. know why it was left in. Because um, yeah, it was it, it, it's it's not a good move, and 
quite rightly, I think they're getting criticised for it. Um, yeah. Which they should. Um, yeah. Oh, the other thing, yeah, with regards to support actors in this, Carl Urban's name appears on the opening credits. I thought, oh, he's back because he's in the second one, and this is quite exciting. I quite like Carl Urban. I want to see more of him. He's in it for about thirty seconds during a flashback sequence. So <laughs> don't get too excited. <laughs> Um, he might be one of the bigger names on the poster, but um, yeah, 30 second clip is all you're going to get, I'm afraid. So, I mean, just to sum up really the film, um, it's got some quite cool scenes, the sort of things you'd expect from from Riddick with him mm. killing a few people or killing a few monsters and stuff. And the creature designs themselves are actually quite nice. I wanted to see a bit more variety in them. Some The main creatures of the film, the variety in those is just some are big and some are small. I'd quite like to see a bit more variation, but yeah. um, and it, I mean it's an 18-minute film that's stretched out into a two-hour-long film, which meant there were long periods of this where you're just a bit bored and you just wish it would hurry up, or you think they could have just cut out 10 minutes of this and you know, but they don't, and it's in there, so you have to persevere with it. Um, and I guess that's it, really. It's a dumb action movie with some nice effects, but it was never going to be anything but what it is. So mm. yeah. I thought about going to see it tonight, and then I thought, because well, I thought, oh, you know, Owen will have seen it, okay, we can both chat about it, and I thought, oh, two hours, oh, gee, I'm sick of these bloody two-hour films that shouldn't be two hours long, and also, I just got to the point, I was like, I just can't be bothered, yeah. I just, I, it did not excite me at all, mm. um, especially after hearing what you'd already thought of it, and some other reviews, it just seemed like it was a real five five out of ten mm. there you go type film I just couldn't be arsed yeah. so. I mean I'd probably in terms of how, how much enjoyment I got out of it probably similar to Pitch Black but at the same time I, it it really annoyed me with that the way that it yeah. dealt with the, the gay character in it um, so yeah instead you stayed I, I, home and you watched the England game and yeah actually which was probably the worse <laughs> yeah. yeah there we are then that's this week's podcast almost done. Recommendations for next week. Uh, Owen, you kick us off with that. Uh, yes, there is a film coming out on Friday in the cinema, uh, which is going to get a lot of attention. It's by Ron Howard, and you might have heard of it because the trailer's been playing about every single time you've gone to the cinema in the last two or three months, I imagine. Uh, Rush, with um, the story of Nicky Lauda and James Hunt's rivalry. And I've got an article on the website which goes into more detail about why people should watch it. But I think people should. As a person who isn't a fan of Formula One, I found it very exciting and a great drama. So, yeah, that's my recommendation, Rush. And we'll be reviewing that next and week we will as be well. Reviewing Me and Steve week, yeah. hopefully getting the chance to watch that this weekend. Yeah, I'm going to hobble off to see that. I've got nothing better to do <laughs> in my life. Um, I am recommending something from television. Um, Monday, Monday night... ITV is showing Hot Fuzz again, but I'm not revo- uh, reviewing. <laughs> I'm not recommending that. They're nightly viewing. Yeah. <laughs> I am going to film for 20 past seven on Monday evening. Hot Shots is on. Nice. Starring Charlie Sheen. Get that watched. Yes. And uh, James, what are you recommending for people? I'm recommending uh, something in the shops that you can go and buy. But it's not a film. It's... Instead, it's something that has been hugely inspired by films and has uh, the series itself has gone on in turn to inspire films. 
and this feedback loop of inspiration has gone on and on. It's the first time I've been excited about a computer game for about two years. On Tuesday, the 17th of September, Grand Theft Auto 5 is here. And that is my recommendation for next week. Because that's what I'm going to be doing for the next few weeks. I'm still going to fit in the odd film here and there. But I'm going to be devoting a lot more of my time to Grand Theft Auto 5. And so much so that next week we'll also have a little um, special feature about to coincide with Grand Theft Auto's release about the relationship between films and computer games, how they've influenced each other, and um, and trying to answer that question, why has there never been a really good adaptation of a computer game? And so that's my recommendation, Grand Theft Auto Five. And I'm going to do an in-depth study on how violent computer games influence young people by killing a prostitute live on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we didn't talk about that in the production meetings. <laughs> I'm not sure that's been... Yeah, sod it, go for it. Yeah. Just make sure you steal the money back afterwards. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's what I learned from Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> and do it to an awesome soundtrack. Mm. That, there we go. Anyway, that's all for this week. Um, you, We will be back at the same time next week. The website is www.failcritic.com. Uh, we're also on Twitter. So find us there. Join us next week. That, that failed critics as well. You got to tell them, Steve. <laughs> just do a Google search. Yeah, they'll, they'll <laughs> just look for some failed critic or something into a search engine. <laughs> we'll be there somewhere. No one's masqueraders, as it'll be fine. Yeah, yeah, we haven't got a blue tick on our Twitter profile, have we? <laughs> That's the next stage. When we've got that, we'll know we've made it. Yeah, we need to get verified. Right. A beautifully shambolic end to the podcast there. It's lovely. It's good stuff. Help the humans about to escape. Get your paws off me, you dirty ape. He can talk. 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 I can sing. Oh, help me, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Oh, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. What's wrong with me? I think you're crazy. Want a second opinion? You're all so lazy. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Oh, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Can I play the piano anymore? Of course you can. Well, I couldn't before. Everything. Oh, I love legitimate theater. The Fell Critics Podcast was devised and produced by James Diamond, hosted by Steve Norman, with contributions from Owen Hughes and Jerry McCauley. Music is provided by Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com. You can find us at failedcritics.com and on Twitter at, at failedcritics.